Hey, I'm Nate Flax. I'm Noah Longworth-McGuire. And this is Talking Lion. Talking Lion is a podcast focused on artist-to-artist conversation. We're primarily artists, a duo called Sleeping Lion, but we've been lucky enough to write, produce, and hang out with so many incredible rising artists since we started our project. Whether it's at sessions or parties or over cups of coffee, we've talked with our creative friends about everything. Music, life, love, and all the subtle complexities that come with being in the middle of a journey. Talking Lion is about hitting record in these conversations and sharing them with you. There's no real structure, nothing really prepared, just friends talking about life and what it's been like and where it's going. We now have a Patreon for fans of our show to help keep this going. Subscribers will become a part of the show in various ways, from providing questions to our guests, to getting a shout out on the show, to actually being on the show to chat with us. We'll even send you a mug. So check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash talking lion. We recorded this episode with our close friend, Kira Kazarin. I run into Kira a couple times around LA, but we only really hit it off when we both wound up at the same Shabbat party hosted by Matthew Chaim. Shortly after, we all went into quarantine and Kira and I spent hours FaceTiming, eventually protesting together and forming a quarantine pod. She's now one of our closest friends. Some context for this interview. We've been in quarantine for a few months with Kira, so we recorded this interview in person. She just released her EP, Songbird. A prolific songwriter, incredible vocalist, and distinguished actress, Kira Kazarin is one of the most talented and kindest people we've been lucky enough to meet. She's brought a very positive light to us in this very strange time. So, without further ado, I'm Kira Kazarin, and this is Talking Lion. Well, hey. Hi. <laughs> we finally have you on the show. It's happening. How exciting. It's. We were talking about it last night. It's It's strange because beginning of the year, I was just like, okay, who would be cool on the show? Like, and I put your name on a list of people, whatever. Having and met at a party and talked for a couple hours. For like, yeah. Well, that was even before the party. Oh, was it really? It was before Shabbat. Like, just it from was having friends in common. Just from friends in common and running liking your shows. music and like all that, whatever. And Lily, you know, we've in recent, uh, recent history have become crazy close friends. Yeah. We're a quarantine now. We are. We're a co-quarantine. We became that like super, super close, just like FaceTiming at the beginning of quarantine. I think we had really like congruent anxiety that just like we, <laughs> Definitely. we were like really good companions for each other through that. And then, uh, yeah, we, we went to a couple protests together and just sort of formed this accidental quarantine pod that's been such a huge gift. It's been it's been awesome. Honestly, like we when the quarantine first started, I was kind of just like losing my mind a little bit and then I, and really? I was yeah no I mean as, as people were but like I don't know I like it, it was a very kind of like you know I, as people I imagine experience like it was a very primal kind of anxiety and I was like who else is freaking out and I'm like looking through my story I'm like nobody's freaking out and I'm just like wait Kira's also freaking out about <laughs> as much as I am and so I was like hey are you terrified and you're like yeah I'm t- terrified yeah. uh you know so I, I appreciate just like yeah you know keeping me sane during the 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 early days of quarantine. You too. It's it's really funny that we're doing this podcast like talking because like, I mean, all friends talk. Like that's what you do in a friendship. But like we talk. We talk. We talk. That's all we yeah. do is talk. Well, I mean, the first the first like day that we actually hung because we had met like a couple times before, but it was really weird scenarios. One was after your show. And that was a, a very awkward show. And I was super, str- it was, I've talked about this story before, but it was a show that like three or four exes of mine showed up to unannounced and I had to sing songs about them and watch it register on their faces. And I had a bunch of sound technical difficulties and <laughs> So I just came off that stage going, did that just happen? And then all of a sudden there's a little, a wild Nate Flax appears. 
here. And I'm just like, hello, oh, I, know, I know like eight of your friends and I think we could be friends. And, and I was I'm, like, cool, yeah. my brain can't process this right now. Let's talk later. Um, and then it was like a, like a, a John Bellion concert. You were like waiting for an Uber and I'm just like, oh, I know you. And you're yeah. like, nice to see you. I have to catch this Uber. Yeah. It's like it was, they came like on the other side of the street and you're yeah. like trying to cross like from the bottom of the Greek or whatever. It was, but what was funny was that like Shabbat, I was just like, oh, we're like the same person. We have everything in common. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to get a harmony and instead I got a minor second. Love that. Yeah, Nate, <laughs> Nate met my mom recently and my mom decided that she is the son version of me, which is which is lovely. I, I'll take it. Your mom's love is actually all, all I, you know, all I've, that's the only parental uh, need that I that I, that I have. Just, Perfect. Well, you, you well it. it was funny. Your, your mom and I were talking about Broadway stuff and mm-hmm. life stuff and everything like that. And she's just like, yeah, you know, you see it all the time. Like people are only as good as the friends they keep. And I'm like, that's, my whole Aww. ethos, like That's so cute, I, like like Mama Cosmo, Mama Cosmo, I, I feel so seen. Lauren, oh, oh Lauren, oh Lauren, oh, we love Lauren. She's the best. She's the best. Well, I think that's actually a pretty solid segue for for childhood. You Oof. know, whoa, like let's like, get deep real let's quick. Talk, I mean, you know, you talk about your parents. Who are your parents? Like, what was it like growing up? You you, you had like a musical family. I, I relate. I, I did. I, I never stood a chance, man. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was I was doomed to this life in the most beautiful way. Yeah. So my my parents were were Broadway theater folk. My dad was a music director and arranger. Um, as well as my uncle, my uncle's uh, kind of Alan Menken's right-hand man, which was always really cool for me growing up. My mom was a Broadway actress, singer, dancer. So I actually kind of grew up backstage at the Lunt Fontan Theater in New York. My mom was doing Beauty and the Beast, which my uncle was coincidentally conducting. And my dad was doing, you know, other, other various ga- uh, gigs as I was a kid. I think he was doing Children of Eden at that time. And uh, yeah, so I just like kind of always knew that that was like where I fit and like what I wanted to do with my life. It was never really a question. My dad, I remember sat me down when I was really, really young, probably like four or five and basically said like, you don't have to go into music. You don't have to make it your life or your career, but it's a language we speak in this house. Wow. And so you have to learn the language so that we can speak. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he put me into piano lessons and <laughs> you know, taught me singing lessons and taught me theory and taught me the basic structure of songwriting and chord progressions and like kind of all of the, uh, you know, info I I needed as a kid. And, you know, my parents and I would harmonize in three-part harmony. I've always been a huge harmony nerd. Like harmony has always just kind of like come to me pretty naturally. And so, you know, my parents would be singing and I would join in with them. And it got to the point where we would have these sort of unspoken rules of like, who would take what part <laughs> because like things would happen where like, you know, it'd be a birthday party and we would all be singing happy birthday and we would all go to the harmony. So we had to come up with a, a hard and fast rule that whoever started singing has to stay on the melody. The next person who comes in can take the third and the next person can take the fifth. <laughs> that's, well, that's great. It's funny you said that. One the Von Cosser and family singers. One of the, I think the memory, like, like this will be stuck in my head forever was when we, when we were at, at your house and you, your mom, and your dad launched into "You Know Better Than I," which I knew from like the Joseph movie. Yeah. Um, and you guys suddenly just like launched into it, and it was it was gorgeous. It was awesome. I remember you just like giving your mom like a, a tap when she hit. I think she hit the third when when. Well, I, I pointed agreement. at her and I pointed up. Yeah, I was like, yeah. I saw this very tacit, like, yeah. like you know the rules. Like, I love that you, you caught know, that. Like, that. That makes me so happy. Well, yeah, I mean, it sort of it sort of became a survival mechanism at parties because, you know, my my dad is is very much like me in the way that he's a very very social guy. But when his social battery runs out, it's run out. Yeah. And so what he always used to do at parties is, if there was a piano, 
he would find it. And <laughs> as soon as his social battery ran out and he no longer felt like making small talk, he would just go to the piano and start playing. And then inevitably my mom and I would start singing and it would become a jam night. And it was always really, Do you guys ever really consider lovely. having a, a family traveling show? Taking, <laughs> it, taking it on the road. You would, you the would. The Cosarin family quartet or whatever. Yeah. You would think, nope, it's a, it's a Casa Casa and special. You got to come over to witness it. <laughs> well, it's funny. My, uh, you know, and my, you both have. Yeah. Know, yeah. If, honestly, honestly yeah. it was, it was, it was a, a, it was, a treat to, to witness. It was, it was also a treat to watch you two playing and, and our other friend Max all playing on the piano at the same time. <laughs> like my family childhood piano and my dad like just watching and, and beaming and just being so, so excited. Silently judging us. No, for, for no. Truthfully, bit, tr- truthfully so excited. Sizing us up, but also at, I think we passed the test. I think we yes. passed the test. Yeah. Absolutely sizing <laughs> I, I you was up. De- we were all definitely like, because like, your dad's really good. Like, we were all, really good. We were all just very quietly nervous. I, like, I will <laughs> say, my dad did mention, he was like, your friends are really talented. They were all shaking. <laughs> and I was like, yes, rightfully so. Well, he's also, he's also extremely, like, you know, he went down and we played uh, Waving Through a Window. So we were all like, like the three of us, you know, kind of lined up like it was a chorus yeah, line. I, I will like, also <laughs> interject here. Um, this is a whole other story, but my, my dad's right arm is paralyzed from an accident. He saved a drowning child in a hurricane, which is absolutely just the what? most my father thing you can imagine. Whoa. Um, yeah. So that sounds like a Cards Against Humanity card. I know. Card. Yeah. Her name was Kira too. Whoa. She was three. Whoa. Yeah, super strange. But um, yeah, his right arm is paralyzed. So he has no feeling in his right arm, no movement in his shoulder and chronic pain. And he's still able to play better than any human being has a right it to was, play any instrument. It was wild. And, you know, and obviously you know, he was reading it, too. And it was really special. Like, it was, re- it was really, really cool. Yeah, it was but, a beautiful, uh, beautiful night. Uh, but, yeah, it was, it was nice to see see the the three of you interact in that in that space. I feel very similarly. My, uh, my dad and my uncle are both piano players. Both have been in bands their whole life. And that was always, like, at Thanksgiving when they when they realized that their family, uh, you know, battery was out, they would go to the piano. I would jam with my dad on Friday nights and stuff like that. And there was, I remember the turning point when I could, like, play piano piano along with them. Yeah. Because, you, know, you know, at some point, you know, they're playing piano and I'm playing chopsticks. Right. But at a certain point, you pass the threshold where you can play songs. Right. I, I remember when I got to the point on guitar where I was like, I mean, I don't know if I would say I'm like as good at guitar as my dad is at piano because obviously he was a professional. I guess I'm technically a professional too. But I remember when my guitar skills were able to match his piano skills to where like I could play songs by ear right? Uh, the first time listening to them or like I could improvise along with him. And the first time he was playing a James Taylor song on the piano and I picked up my guitar and I just started playing and singing with him in harmony. And I was like, okay, cool. Now we are in some way musical peers. You, well, can, speak, you was, can speak the language. Exactly. Yeah. I can speak the language. We can have a conversation fluently. Right. Oh, what a lovely uh, <laughs> full circle moment, Noah. It was beautiful. Well, I'm sure that's how he felt too. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? Well, remember- he did buy me my guitar with the express rule of I'm going to buy this guitar for you. You have to learn how to play every James James Taylor song for me ever. <laughs> my, my, my mom uh, loved James Taylor, but like my dad was like a, a rock person. So it just wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. Is that where but, your pop punk inclination comes I, from? You know, that was a little bit, I mean, cause I was like, you know, I grew up with like sort of Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, more the prog rock. Actually, it was fun. I was, I was saying to your mom, I grew up with like Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and then the Pippin soundtrack. <laughs> like, that, which is just a which very- my dad did. I know. Yeah. <laughs> His name's on the record. Very different, very different, you know, totally. whatever. Uh, I, and I think Broadway brings out more pop punk than say prog rock does. But there was also like a bunch of punk bands in my hometown. And that was where that kind of came from. Amazing. Um, no, but uh, I think it's very, very cool how, how you guys all interacted in that space though. And, and obviously- you guys love James Taylor. You like you love all these songs, but I feel like there's also a turning point when you have that that dynamic when you start writing too. Yeah, I remember my dad getting very like 
you know, I mean, he like choked up a little bit because he's like, oh my God, like a song exists that my kid, you know. Yeah. So my dad, that moment, like my dad was always very supportive of me, like writing music. He always encouraged. I never had a journal or a diary. It was always writing songs from the time I was five or six. You know, none of them were really very cohesive until I was probably 12 or 13. But I, I do remember, I think the day that he started taking me seriously as a songwriter was I was sitting at the piano in our living room in probably Florida, where I lived there from ages like seven to 12. And I was playing a song I had just written and he said, oh, is that Sarah Bareilles? <laughs> oh, yeah. And I said, that's, that's a, that's a I compliment said, for sure. No, I, I wrote it and he stopped and he was like, you're joking. And I said, no. And he was like, Lauren, <laughs> Lauren, come here. And my mom came in. She's like, what, what, what? And my dad was like, don't say anything. Just play the song for her. And I played it. And my mom, I think, said the same thing. She was like, oh, is that like Sarah Bareilles? Like, <laughs> like Ingrid Michaelson or, you know, like, you know, Natasha Battingfield or like you know, Natalie Bruglia, like one of those <laughs> Colby Calais. That's what it was. She said oh, she asked right, yeah. Colby Calais. This is like who she was listening to at the right, time. She had a right. playlist called Girls and it was like early 2000s pop girls. And um, it wasn't the HBO series. No, soundtrack. No, no, yeah. no, no, Lena Dunham. But um, yeah, that was the day I think my parents were like, oh, and it's interesting because we sort of had a similar day, the day that I think they started taking me seriously as an actor and mm. realizing that I could potentially have the potential <laughs> potentially have the potentially potential, have the potentially the potential, potentially potential, the, potential the, the um, yeah yeah which they they heard me on a Skype lesson with my acting teacher again in Florida and in the scene I was yelling at him and my dad came downstairs to yell at me to say how dare you speak to an oh, adult wow. like that how dare you be so rude I this is not how I raised you and I was like dad I'm doing a scene and he was like oh you're good at this. <laughs> cool. Let's give it a shot. Yeah, sure. So, so you, so you grew up, grew up in Florida. How, how old were you when you made the LA move? Yeah. So yeah. I moved here like a month, two months before my thirteenth birthday, um, which is my my ten year anniversary is this week. Oh wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, hey, we'll, we'll have to celebrate. We absolutely. We, will. we. I feel like every time we hang out, we have something to celebrate. We literally do. This group never has nothing to celebrate. I think it's also because, and this is also one of the reasons I think you and I, Nate, got so close during quarantine, is because we both sort of didn't know what we were doing with our releases, and both sort of decided to release this accidental EP project right. in a way sort of on a similar timeline. Like we say our EPs are like cousins who like got to grow up together. Very much so. Um, And so, and our releases were skewed by one or two weeks. Yeah. So every day it was either like a, we submitted it. We got the master. (laughs) We, it's out, it's released. The music video is dropping. The merch is dropping. The lyric video is dropping. Like, you know, all those little fun milestones that you genuinely really have to celebrate when you're an independent artist and you're just doing absolutely everything by yourself and everything takes an inordinate amount of power and strength to well, like push through. And I was, I was telling you this, like, I feel like in a lot of ways, like you've, you know, even just in the last like couple weeks and months have, have taught me how to enjoy this whole part of the process. Aww. Because what I like to do is the planning. What I like to do is like make it. And by the time a song is out, like Noah and I are already checked out. Like by the time, by the time a song is like there. I feel that it feels like the end for us, even though it's the beginning, beginning for, for everybody else. else. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing is like, like by the time a song comes out, most people don't know this. Like that's a month after the song was finished like we you have to deliver a month in advance yeah, and, so you know a year to six years after the song was written right you know, we're, we're fine drops tonight you guys wrote that what five, five years, years ago, ago yeah. yeah first love never lasts which has been pretty consistently people's like one of their favorite songs on songbird i wrote literally three or four years ago so that's the thing is like you know we've we've had our relationship we've had our time with it by the time we're done with it we don't even want to hear it anymore because either you hear it and you're like you catch something and you're like well it's already out for distro or you just heard it when you, every time you listen to a mix, every time you listen to a master, and I don't have to t- tell you, I'm yeah. telling the fair listeners. I mean, you're listening to essentially the same version of a song with minor tweaks. 
you know, a right. couple dozen times. It's, it's only three minutes of audio and you got to go over every yeah. inch of it. Yeah. It, it almost becomes like if you're you're watching a TV show, right? And you have to watch it 50 times and every time you watch it, it gets slightly more pixelated and you notice every individual pixel. By the time it's out, you don't want to watch that TV show oh, anymore yeah. because you, all you, you can see is the pixels. You can't, yeah, all you can see is the pixels. And I think for, for artists like us who infuse an incredible amount of emotion and personal storytelling into our songs. I think a lot of the time it also carries an emotional burden. Oh yeah. And when you release a song, it's cathartic and you're done and you're able to close that chapter in your life. So you don't want to go back and open it up again. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Plus because there's so much time since that chapter, you know, you close. wrote the song when you were feeling it. Right. One of the paradoxes that I find in like actually putting out music and making music is that I would argue one of the most important experiences for somebody having a relationship with a song is the first time they hear yep. it. Mm -hmm. You know, I like, I will always remember where I was when I heard, you know, like happy by Julia Michaels for the first time. You're not afforded or, that experience you, as an artist. And you can't get that. And what's, what's really interesting is that we have to make a song curated towards on your first listen, is this going to be a magical experience? And we are incapable of having that experience <laughs> for yeah. ourselves. I will say though, some of my favorite songs of all time and favorite albums of all time, I absolutely hated the first time I listened True. and they've become the most meaningful thing in the world to me. So I don't necessarily think that's the end all be all, but I do think that that's like a lovely magical part of listening to music that we don't really get to enjoy with ourselves. However, one of the nice things about having a little pot of musicians like we have is that <laughs> we get to give each other those moments. Yeah. And, you know, the first time that we, you and I hung out with our little co-quarantine group that we spent a good amount of time with happened to be the night that Loving You Silently, one of my songs from Songbird came out. And that was a song that was a really stressful process to mix and really emotional for me. It was about moving on from a really intense, you know, relationship and getting to watch you guys <laughs> hear it kind of for the first time. I was like, oh, I get to vicariously have this experience through you guys and you know what went into it. And then, you know, I, we've gotten to do the same with, with you guys. Well, and that's, so. that's kind of like, you know, what I was playing as, like, it really hit me watching you hear... Hear Loving my song like yeah. it was the first time. Like it was the first time because it, it was just like kind of feedback. Like I was watching you watch us listen to the first time, you know, and like, and, and this experience of like, oh my God, yeah, these songs are out. Like this is happening. Like yeah. these are, you know, the things. And, and, and then you've given that to us when every, like, right. you're like, oh, it's nine o'clock. We're listening to your song. Oh, no matter what we're doing, we'll stop. <laughs> We've been watching any strange variety of projects where in the middle of it, we go, all right, stop. Time to it's, listen. It's, it's exactly nine o'clock. It's release time. It's release time on the West Coast. <laughs> and, um, so, and yeah. so like, you know, in a lot of ways, it, it's kind of taught me to enjoy that part of it. Like that a release isn't just like, oh, now, you know, cross your fingers for Spotify. Oh, let your manager do the thing. Like it's been like, oh, this is a song that I care about and I liked enough to put out. I can actually enjoy this and watch my friends right. enjoy it it's too. Not a period, it's a comma. Yo, an ellipses? <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> Thanks, I hate it. What about a semicolon? Like that. Yeah, you've, you've learned the, uh, the the good art of, of shutting down any any terrible joke <laughs> I make. Yeah, you've, you've, you've honed the skill. Nate, I knew what I signed up for. Truly. I'm, in it, I'm in it for the puns. Yeah, you knew it was a snake, you know? Yeah. Could have been a rug. Could have, hey, she knows. I know. She knows what's up. So when you, when you moved to L.A., had you already booked the show? No, no, no. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah I forgot. I was telling that story. Yeah, you know, we, we, we go on tangents. Us tangents? We do tan yeah, tangents, you know. Um, what are we, triangles? I hate it. So <laughs> <laughs> when I was in Florida, I knew I wanted to do theater because I love singing and dancing and acting and just like, you know, I never shut up and I just needed to like be on a stage somewhere acting like a fool and being silly. And an email came around for an open call for a Nickelodeon show. And I really wanted to go. I was like, I'm going to get discovered. 
And um, <laughs> I couldn't make it because I had a, a ballet rehearsal for a show that I had committed to. And my dad was like, listen, you know, you made a commitment. You need to stick to your commitment. Maybe this will come back around later. But like, I didn't realize this was something you were into. And I was like, oh my God, all I do is watch Nickelodeon and, and Disney after right. school. And like, it, yes, of course. Were you watching like the, was it Drake and Josh and I Carly and so, stuff? Uh, it, was like little, era? it was a little earlier than that okay. even. It was like, you know, it was like Wizards of Waverly Place. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Towards the later, yeah, I guess when I was in Florida, it was like Sunny with a Chance. Oh, oh, okay. And I remember actually watching the title sequence of that show where she gets the call and goes to Hollywood. And my mom was like, is that something you would ever want to do? And I was like, of course, but that doesn't happen. Funny enough, uh, Audrey Whippy, who was on So Random and Sitting with a Chance, ended up playing my best friend on Nickelodeon. Oh my God. Being my best friend for many years. Did you ever express that to her? Yes. That's so funny. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I yeah. told her that the first time we hung out, I was starstruck. I, I don't think I ever had like the TV England, but I did very secretly. I would never tell anybody. I wanted to be a part of the Naked Brothers band. Amazing. I was so <laughs> upset. They are wonderful. I go to yoga with them. Um, <laughs> so, so anyway. All of this is to say, my dad heard rumblings of a Disney-inclined acting teacher coming to Florida, teaching like acting workshops. Um, and so he asked me if it was something I'd be into. I said, absolutely, sign me up. And the acting teacher came and I did this class and I just felt, I felt like I was home. I felt like I, like I had found my people and I had the greatest time in this workshop. It was like a, you know, three hour workshop with an improv class and some scene work. And the acting teacher was like, you're good at this. Like you have, you have something here. Do you want to maybe like come to this other intensive? So came to the other intensive in Florida. And then at the end of that, he was like, if you want to, I'm, I have a summer camp out in LA called Camp Hollywood. And this, this camp is still up and running. It's obviously evolved into something much more magical since then. And I've been a, a counselor now for years. Oh, wow. and mm. I directed a short film for them last year that the kids were oh, in. Awesome. I've become a, a part of it. But he invited me out to LA. And the first couple days I was here, I got my agent. She was <laughs> like, you got to move to LA. I met a manager who was like, you should really move to LA. And I got two or three auditions and I got callbacks on all of them. Was we it overwhelming like, oh. as, as, a, as a kid be, having people being like, oh, come to LA, like you should. It wasn't even overwhelming so much as absurd. I was like, <laughs> what do you mean? I live in Florida. Like, <laughs> what do you, like, I have to go home next week. I have an eight week ballet intensive coming up. Like what? Um, and I remember, I remember actually being in the meeting with my, who became my agent as a kid and my dad being like, go, go outside for a sec. Let's, let me, we're, we're going to talk for a second. Like, right. He really wanted to shelter me from the business side of things, which I'm really grateful for in retrospect. And yeah, he sort of came out of it and was like, if this is something you're really serious about, let's go to LA for six weeks and see what happens. Now, granted, there are other sides of this. One of which being that my dad had had an accident, was on disability, no longer working, and his job was the reason we lived in Florida. So, it wasn't the arm thing, yeah, was yeah. it? Okay, yeah. So we no longer had a, a tether to Florida necessarily. Right. So I was I was 12, decided to come out here, went straight in high school. I skipped a couple grades. That's a whole other story. But I went into high school and I was only going to stay for like a semester or maybe a year if we liked it. And I literally never went home. We decided, I, you know, I, I didn't book anything, but I was just getting really close to things and getting good feedback. Right. And more importantly, just loving it. Just loving being in improv classes and guitar lessons and music classes and taking dance classes with the best dance teachers in the world. And I just, you know, all of my passions were really centered right here in LA and it just, it fit really well. And then coincidentally, my parents' best friends happened to live here. And <laughs> so they got to have that. Yeah, so we, we just kind of stayed out here and I auditioned for two and a half years before I ever really booked anything significant. Within those two and a half years, I got down to the final two actors for a given role, like went to the final audition. It was between me and them 12 times. Whoa. Was, and every time it was the other person. Was that hard on you? Like, was that, like, did you take that personally or, or had you already built up a kind of like rejection defense like mechanism? You know what's mechanism? funny? No. 
It didn't really because, and this is also very much thanks to my parents and the way that we kind of framed what this whole career was, was the auditioning was the job to me. The job was do a great audition and make a fan. And that was it. That was Mm -hmm. all I was expected to do was prepare the best you can and try to come out of every audition being proud of what you did. And that was it. And that was fun for me. Are you kidding me? To, to be able to go into a room, at this point, most of the things I was auditioning for were comedy, which came very naturally to me. I was a super silly, ridiculous kid. So I was able to go into these rooms of adults and try to make them laugh. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, I, there's nothing I could imagine more. I was an only child. I loved adults. I just wanted adults to like me. <laughs> I had no friends my own age. I still barely have friends my I own still, age. I still want adults to like me. I'm an adult. Yeah, yeah. literally. <laughs> so, um... Yeah, no, it really was just that. And then the first time I booked my first job, it was a small, super small guest star on a Disney show called Shake It Up. And I remember being on set with Zendaya and Bella Thorne. Uh And I remember being on set and being like, oh, there's something on the other side. Oh, (laughs) shit, this is the job. Wait, this, this. And then I I think I had a little bit more of a fire under my ass to like get these roles. But yeah, so two and a half years in, I, I booked Thundermans. I went from kind of zero to a hundred real quick. And we were originally just a show with like, you know, seven or eight episodes. And then we just got extended, extended. And all of a sudden it was six years and 105 episodes and 72 countries later. Yeah. That's, I mean, and, and that was the thing is like, we've had this like funny experience of learning about your life backwards. Yeah, well, right. most of you my, know? because most of my friends are two years older than me, again, because I skipped two grades right. and my peers have always been older. I'm sort of lucky in that most of my friends were just two years too old to have watched my show. Right. So I really right. get to meet people with a clean slate, which is nice. Well, it, it was it was funny because we, we did go back and like watch, you know, like we didn't watch an episode, but we watched like, you know, some of the interview stuff like that. Yeah. It, it felt, it seemed like almost like a different world. Or like it, a different, I, I was a different person. Yeah. In every way. What was, say, like a, a high and low, I mean, obviously finding a high and low of six years right. is, is crazy, but like, what would you say was like, like a high of the experience of low? And what's something maybe you learned? Like yeah. from, so from that, yeah. I would say that the highs of the experience were the live tapings because it gave me that element of live performance that I really love, um, whether it's theater or music or whatever else. Um, the, the, the biggest thing that I'm grateful for from the show genuinely is that I get to travel the world. They used to, every hiatus, they would send us to do press in other countries and I've been to almost every continent with Nickelodeon and that's, <laughs> I know, a ridiculous opportunity that like I'm just stupidly grateful for. Um <laughs> You know, this is such a silly little thing, but like winning a Kids' Choice Award was really cool because if you had asked me when I was 10 years old, what's your number one biggest pie in the sky will never happen dream? It was, I want to have my own Nickelodeon show and I want to win a Kids' Choice Award. That's awesome. And then they happened. (laughs) So like to have been, which I will say opened up a whole other can of worms because then I was like, oh my God, my life's biggest dream (laughs) is different. It has been, my life's biggest dream has been achieved. So now what? I was about, I was going to ask you like, like when you get the thing you want, what do you do? Right. And you know, it's, it's funny that I'm saying that sentence sitting here as an artist on your podcast. The reason that, I didn't really have any professional aspirations as an artist yet is because music has always been my therapy. It's always been catharsis. It's always been the thing that I turned to when I was stressed. And so ever since I was little, I was always terrified of turning it into my career right. because I didn't want to lose my escape and turn it into something that caused me stress, <laughs> which it, it has sort <laughs> right. of, you yeah. know, it's part of the territory. I wouldn't change it for the world. But you, fi- you find, you know, I think we've all found the nuance of like blocking off. Okay, well, here's the therapy time. Right. And, you know, when you're a little kid, you think I have to be happy all the time. And then you grow up and you realize work is work. Right. Whatever career you choose, you're going to have hard days. But if they're hard days, 
because in the work you like because yeah. you care about yes, what you're yes. doing those hard days are worth it rather than hard days where you're doing something that you don't have any desire to be doing so yeah so so that those are high points also i'm not i'm not gonna lie uh i i, I played it off very cool but when i saw the kids choice award at your place i was like it's always a fun moment i always let people <laughs> discover it i was like i was like i was trying to just sort of like like oh that's a cool the kids chose you yeah i'm like that's a cool little did, thing i'm like can did. i i'm like can i hold it you're like yeah you you can, you can, you can, you can, you can hold it. Of course it. you can. I will say my apartment reads a little narcissistic and it's only because I have a bunch of really cool, like Nick merch from over the years. And when I moved out, my mom essentially was like, take it or it's getting thrown out. And I was like, <laughs> I'm a super sentimental person. Oh yeah, yeah. So I took every single bit of it, but that also has the unfortunate side effect of when you walk into my apartment, there's a huge bookshelf of knickknacks. I guess it's not unfortunate if you- Knickknacks? Knickknacks. <laughs> Some of them are really cool, like 90s Nick memorabilia, which I'm proud of. But I definitely have like two action figures of myself. Well, sitting I don't, on I don't desk, think I, I never thought really it was narcissistic. I was like, that's cool. I, I think if you I think if you have an action yeah, figure an action made of yourself, figure of yourself, you got to put it on a shelf. Yeah. Right, like that's comes with anything, the territory. I was shocked it wasn't like in a glass case. Like if I had an action figure of myself, it would be like on my desk. Like, uh, you fair. Know. No, it is. It's cool. I, I, I Honestly, I think I have the small remnants of when I was coming up, when I was coming up in the young Hollywood world, you know, there's sort of two different camps of kids, right? There's like the sitcom kids and there is the movie kids. And we all interact at red carpets and events and parties and whatever else. And I think there was always like a little bit of a sense of like, oh yeah, but you're not a film kid. You're a sitcom kid. And that's ridiculous. That's absurd. Yeah, I was, you can memorize so much better than they can. No, 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 yeah. but not even that. But like I was an actor doing something I really enjoyed and having fun and making kids laugh. Like right. I should have never been ashamed of that. But I think when you're, you know, a young teenager and you so desperately want to have the respect and validation of your peers and you end up in certain circles where you don't feel that it sticks with you. And so I feel like I, I catch myself sometimes being like, oh no, 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 it's silly. And I'm just recently starting to be like, no, that's a really cool thing that I did. Like I, I'm allowed to be, I'm allowed to be proud of that as a thing that happened. So I take yeah. it back. Well, I remember we were watching like one of the interviews, and you were you were sort of cringing at yourself, whatever. Yeah. And I, like I like we both looked at you, were like, regardless of how ridiculous you might think this is, this is cool. Like this is an objectively interesting yeah. thing. Yeah, you know? I think it's also now that I'm saying this out loud, I think a big a big part of the reason that my brain decided to take it as cringe is because. You know that that period where you're transitioning from being a teen to an adult? Oh, yeah. yeah. All you want is people to take you seriously as an adult. And everything that I was doing for my job was serving the opposite of that purpose. Right. Serving to keep me looking juvenile. And, you know, because that was that was the brand of that course, I was representing. And, I mean, that sort of transitions into why my first album was called Off Brand and why my indie, you know, record label is Off Brand Music. Because that record was me giving myself permission to not have to worry about representing the brand well because I really did want to when I was working for them. I was so grateful for the job. I, I always wanted to be a good little, good little, you know, <laughs> representative of the network and do what I was meant to. But that was sort of me forgiving myself and giving myself permission to like grow up a little. On, on the show, we've had like people who've done like American Idol and that like, and obviously American Idol is not the same as doing 106 episodes of a show, but there's but still similar. the idea of like, oh, the like transition. I, people to knew me in seriously. this space. And now I'm, I'm not only in this other space, but I'm, I'm potentially also like, I have to make my own support now. Right. You know, or like, or I'm in this, I'm in this new world um, outside of it. Was the transition into from actress? I mean, even though you were a musician at heart, was it the, the transition from right. so, actor Kira to yeah. okay, so, artist Kira really hard? So yeah, so the transition is always difficult. And let me say this, if you've ever cast judgment on Demi or Miley or Selena or any of them on how they've done the transition, I just implore you to like take a step back and consider what a strange experience 
that sort of an adolescence is mm-hmm. and what kind of a position it puts you in. And I, I say that because I've gained a lot more respect for those kinds of people having now been through it. I think there's a few parts of the transition, right? So there is being taken seriously as an adult. Mm-hmm. There is being taken seriously as a musician. Mm-hmm. There is the layer, maybe this isn't something that everybody experienced, but something that I very heavily experienced of having your sexuality completely repressed and controlled mm. as you're becoming an adult. And it's sort of like a slingshot where you're getting pulled so far back in that direction that when those restrictions are released, you kind of want to be like, hey, everybody, I'm a woman. You know right, what I mean? Right. Like, at least that was something I experienced. That's, you know, there's a couple of like pretty explicit songs on my record that realistically, I, I don't think I needed to put out. But I in that moment, I felt like I needed to announce and assert myself as like an adult person. So, yeah. And, and then that is the other thing, like, you know, coming from the Disney Nickelodeon world, it's sort of this, you know, trope of like, well, you can't be a kid on TV anymore. So now you're going to do music so you can be relevant, which people don't realize I was a musician first and the TV mm-hmm. thing kind of happened by accident. Right. And I was writing music the whole time I was on the show. I wrote three or four albums worth, which you guys have now heard because the other <laughs> night we did a night of let's show each other all the music we wrote when we were teenagers. And quite frankly, I think we all peaked as teenagers. Yeah, I mean, honest, I, I, honestly, honestly. Just, just hearing, just hearing all of your songs, like, like yours, Noah's and Max's of like what we were writing when we were like 15, 16. I'm like, were we, were we great? Like, were did, we, we're, it's like how, where did we go How much wrong? better have we actually gotten? <laughs> yeah. Um, we might have to make a, make a throwback project together. Oh yeah. That, that'd, um, be, that'd be really interesting. We are going to call we, it high school music. Music. I love that. High school music. Put a, put a pin in this conversation because I don't want to forget what we're talking about, but I do want to say to the world that's listening because this will happen eventually. Nate and I had a conversation on FaceTime about like, will you remember me when the world starts up again? Like kind of as a joke, but also kind of as well, a like, I was, are I we going to be friends after this? Or like, what is this relationship? Well, when we first started talking, I would like, like I was definitely not, like, cause, you know, we, we met, but we were also so busy, so we didn't get a yeah. chance to hang after like whatever. And then the world ended right. in a sense. So I was like, like, are we friends because it's convenient to talk to somebody else who's like terrified or are we actually like right. becoming friends? So and I was like, quietly, I'm like, haha, like that's a joke. Like, do you think we'll these yeah. still be friends? When he said not? it and I went, that's a lyric and I'm calling dibs on it. And then <laughs> I actually wrote a bit of a song about it. And so I think we're gonna actually turn it into a real song. And I'm saying this out loud because Nate loves uh, having documentation of absolutely everything in the entire world. Um, literally everything in his life, phone calls, food, whatever you can imagine, and um, voice memos. And I know that this is a voice memo that we're going to want to listen back to, whether it's in the podcast or not. So I, I appreciate you indulging my own need for posterity. Of so. course. I, I love it. You're, you are our group's resident documentarian. It's it's the least I can do to pay you back for all the great pictures you've taken. I think group's resident documentarian. I need that on a shirt, a mug, my grave. Like that's just... <laughs> yeah. I got you. But anyway, yeah. So, so that has been a big thing is sort of the quest for conveying authenticity and just conveying that like I've been a songwriter and a musician my whole life and just because it wasn't something that you guys were really privy to this is not just a fluke this isn't just like because I'm too old to be on Nickelodeon it's because this is the thing I care about more than anything in the world and have put in my 10,000 hours on so you know I think it's I think it's getting there this project helped a lot I imagine that there are people who are who are like looking at you and they don't see Kira they see what Phoebe absolutely and like people even go so far as to say you know stop singing, nobody cares, go mm. put on your spandex super suit. I mean, that's fucked. Which is like, bullshit, yeah. and I know that's not true. Yeah. And I've gotten a very thick skin now to where that doesn't affect me anymore, but it did for the first, you know, year or two. I think what's really interesting is that when I met you, you were Kira Cosmer and the artist. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't, like, like, I didn't know any of this stuff. I just, like, you know, I'd heard you in the Time Flies thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you come to one of my shows. Yeah, and I, I was at your show, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is an artist. Like, same as any artist I see every, any Tuesday night, like, whatever. You know, like, she's really talented. She's she's playing guitar. Also, you can dance, like, which I 
can't do to save my life. You were really great. But then when you were expressing like, oh, people don't necessarily even know that I do this, like, like yeah. holistically, I'm like, okay, that's crazy to me. Yeah, because well, you're, you're an objectively better musician and artist than people that we, we know and have seen on some of those stages. Like your theories, not so. Like your melody writing and lyric writing is crazy. Like it's not just like, oh, you, you are an actor who happens to know how to play music. You are like a musician on an academic level who happens to act. <laughs> Thank you. Which is not so. Like that's like, yeah. you know, there are certain parts of your melody writing and your like theoretical basis that run circles around like ours and people that we know or work with or whatever. That like, if people are listening to music, there's chord stuff, there's melody stuff that is really complicated and really intriguing. And the fact that you're able to make it just like work is awesome. So just... I appreciate that. I I will say like, I I think part of what kind of stopped me from like sharing music for for, for a while was the overwhelming like paralysis of like, I need to show everybody everything I can do, which is just like, where do Mm. you even start? And like the whole idea of having to like show people something just never sat right with me and never felt right. And so I, I, I think I had to sort of like organically transition into... Rather than like, I need to show people I've grown, I need to spend my time growing. And right. if people catch it and notice it, great. You know what I mean? Like, I'd rather put the time and effort into evolving and maturing as a musician and just continuing to make whatever I make and putting it out and letting people find it than being like, hey, look what I can do. Hey, look what I can do. Hey, look what I can do. So it maybe is a slower process, therefore. But like, I think it's kind of nice that I get to slowly bring people along on that journey. I think people also need to realize that like, artists aren't just existing in the world of making their own music. I mean, I think what's so, what I always love about artists and the reason we started this to begin with in two facets is artists have a hand in everything that they do. Like, I know how involved you were in getting your merch together. Oh my I know God. How I, it, I, I, everything. Yeah. yeah. I know how involved you were in like, in, in your cover art and like even the TikTok stuff, like how do the TikTok videos tie into the songs and everything like that? Like that takes so many different types of like brain functions. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. And, and also how do you show a public audience, like how do you show a public audience that you're good at video editing? You know, okay. Or that well, you mixed a song. Or that you, you know, that you right. mixed a song or that like, whatever. I, I've always thought that like a genuine capital T talent of mine is talking. I'm like, how do you show that <laughs> to an artist? Well, it's like, I oh. think you figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> Only took us two years to, uh, to get it, you know, to, to, to actually start this thing. But that's the, that's the thing is like, artists are constantly trying to figure out how do I show this audience that, that this is who I am? How do I show them that I I can draw pretty well? How can I show them yeah. that I bike every day, you know? I, yeah, I think I also had a little bit of a hurdle to get over um, in terms of like, again, like not wanting to appear narcissistic, right? And I think that comes from the fact that I was a young kid in Hollywood and I was sort of taught the only thing that matters is that you're pleasant to work with, right? Which mm-hmm. is on his face, a lovely sentiment. Be kind to everyone, respect everyone, whatever. But the way that my brain kind of interpolated that was, you know, don't be a burden. And especially as a woman and a young woman in Hollywood, it's like, just coalesce, do what you can to be collaborative. And as an actor on the whole, your job as an actor is to play a part to help tell a larger story. Like right. you're a very small piece in a very large machine. And then as an artist, your job is to be like as you as possible right. and to be as concentrated and outwardly you and be your own brand. And like you're making your product, you are your product mm-hmm. and you're selling your product. Right. Yeah. 
And you have to, on some level, enjoy your product because you have to consume your product as you're making. You know what I mean? So well, you're, you're an that, actor, writer, director all of a sudden. Yeah. Like, people don't, you know, people Actors don't, don't write their own scripts. And yeah. yet here we are writing our own songs, making our own worlds for them. Like, it's just a totally different and, and job. And live, living the, the, the brand of the artistry, the brand of the music, et cetera. You know, I think people don't realize the world of difference between like a session musician and an artist. A session musician, they're given a piece of music. They come in, they, they're incredible musicians and they're extremely talented, but they come in and they do it. I feel like actors in a similar sense like they are conveying this other bigger machine whereas when you're an artist all of a sudden there's your pen and paper there's your camera go go you know yeah absolutely I think that was something I you know I didn't realize at the beginning and I spent a long time just like looking for people to tell me what to do because I'm a really good student right like I was always I was always an a plus like if you give me instructions I will follow them well and I'm I'm good at that and it was a real like mindset shift to go, that's not what this job is. This job is having ideas, figuring out a way to execute them, and then executing them, which is just entirely a different job. Well, and I think it also like comes out in in how much you've taught yourself and how much you've learned in the artist process. Like you know how to engineer. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. Talk, I, like, like I record and and comp and tune all my vocals now, and it's been such a game changer. There there are artists who don't know how to do half the things that you've had to learn to well, do. Well, that's just because I'm like, a control freak. Well, but, but, <laughs> but also, but also because like why you know. Part of being a control freak, and we've we've experienced this, is why relinquish something to somebody who you don't necessarily know or trust, or like whatever, when you could figure out how to do it. But you yeah. know, that's a whole nother that's a whole nother can of can of worms. Um, when it comes to off brand, when it comes to that that first record, I know you have mixed feelings about it. Absolutely, we've, we've talked about it. Do Absolutely, you, and you hinted at it. Do you feel like you over overswung? I mean, the, I, mind you, I love the record. Like they're they're interesting because that was my introduction to you. Yeah, like, um, I think vinyl area code and take this outside were the ones that like hit just because you know yeah they, they bumped they're cool um how do you feel about that that record if you could go back what would you maybe so, do differently it's a record that I'm objectively proud of um I think the songs are really well crafted I think I didn't really know enough yet about you know the mixing process or how I like to do my vocals or my vocal chain or stacking harmonies I didn't really know enough about my preferences yet to really inject my stamp on them in that way but they they live in their own world I think the thing with off brand is I was trying to make music that sounded like the music I listened to Mm. instead of trying to make my music. And so while I love that project and I'm proud of it and I think it's a dope project and I enjoy listening to it genuinely, I don't really think it reflects me. And the reason for that is people heard that as my first project and so they think that's where I started. But what people don't realize is I was writing songs on my guitar and piano, like songbird songs, essentially, my my newer project. I was writing those songs for years and I was sick of that by then. And I was so concerned with being cool, quote unquote, coming off of Nickelodeon that I was like, I don't want to be a girl singing about boys with my guitar. That's lame. That's basic. Like, I don't want to be Taylor Swift. No shade to Taylor Swift at all. She's incredible. Don't no, but, come for but, Swifties. But, but, but people do say like, oh, the singer songwriter who's writing about exactly. boys. Exactly. Like, yeah. In that time in my life, I didn't want to be seen that way. And so I was like, all right, well, now I have access to all these dope producers. And I was, I was able to go in and be like, Here's the Kehlani record that I can't stop listening to. Here's the Scissor record that I can't stop listening to. Let's make something like this because I love this and I want to listen to it. And it was really fun and I really enjoyed it. But it wasn't me being vulnerable and authentic as myself and as an artist. It was me putting on a kind of a front. And the other thing that's really funny with Off Brand is I really wanted to make music that made people feel confident. 
and badass and made me feel confident and badass. And so I wrote all of the songs on off brand from the point of view of essentially an alter ego who I called bad bitch Kira. (laughs) And, you know, I'm a very emotional, empathetic, you know, kind of sensitive person. And I really wanted to adopt this persona of, of just a bad bitch who gave no fucks and was just too cool for everything. And, made music about that. And it was really fun to like live in that persona for a while. But after a while, it kind of felt embarrassing because realistically, that's not who I am. I'm an overly concerned with other people's feelings, very like communicative. I have no bad feelings on any ex (laughs) I've ever had. I'm like, like, I'm not that person. Like I'm a very like vulnerable, emotional person. And my music really didn't reflect that at that point. So I'm really glad that something like Songbird is out now. I remember like listening to stuff from off brand, like after we become friends, I texted you. I'm just like, who is this? This is, yeah, this is a totally different person. Specifically because like take a song like Area Code. I know you well enough that like you don't get that kind of angry or that kind of like snarky unless somebody really like gets there. Right. Like, so you know what that was? Yeah. So the reason that that happened is because when I write music alone, I take like this amorphous orc cloud of emotions in my brain and then I vomit them out into lyrics. And that's like the articulation pattern. When I was in these sessions for the first time, obviously you can't do that. You have to collaborate. So I would go, here's a story about what's happening in my life. Then I would hear their opinions bounce back at me. And because these were strangers who I was trying to impress most of the time, I would tell the story through the lens of like, ha ha, listen to this dude and what he did. Isn't that stupid? (laughs) And they would be like, yeah, bro, let's write a super sassy song about it. And I'd be like, yeah, dude. And we would write a really sassy song about it. So that's the thing is like, I know now, like specifically in this moment now, that (laughs) like the the story of Ariel, code would have probably initially made you sad like in the same way that anything that doesn't work out like you expect it to would be like we don't get angry first we were talking about that yesterday like we just don't get angry first Uh, yeah rage is not really one of my like emotions i get i get like i'm i'm gonna be that parent that's like i'm not mad i'm just disappointed disappointed. (laughs) so much oh my god i mean but it's also just like jewish parents like wield guilt like a knife like it's just like you know that's the thing is but then you listen to it and that's a snarky ass song oh they're all snarky yeah you know they're it's all snarky. So is Love Me Like You Hate Me, which I'm so embarrassed that that song exists. And <laughs> it also, for what it's worth, the actual story that it's about is really not as filthy as the song sounds. If anybody listening is like an R&B head and wants a super sexy song, like I've literally had couples come up to me after shows and be like, we love your song. No, 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 no. Like we love <laughs> your song. And I'd be like, I get it. You fucked. Bye. <laughs> like, thank you. I don't want to know that, that like I get it. I appreciate it. So if y'all are into that, I really hope me talking about this record in this way is in no way making it seem like it's not a project I'm proud of. Well, people can have their relationship to their record. Genuinely, like, truthfully, if I had to pick a record to listen to between Off Brand and Songbird, it would probably be Off Brand. But if I had to pick a record that represents me as an artist and a human and I think shows technical proficiency and speaks to a different kind of emotion and a human experience at Songbird. Well, that's something that we, at this point, we've been a band for five years. Like, we've had to grapple with that because we're... Broadway kids, we're folk kids. Like, you know how much I love pop punk music, yeah. which is, and yet we're making pop music. You know, we're making electronic pop music. It's interesting. Um, this is so funny and and say whatever you want about this, but Lil Dicky was a huge influence on me. And I mean, um, same to us. So yeah, I'm yeah. With it, yeah. He, shocker. He, <laughs> he has a lyric that's like, the type of music that I bump is not the type I'm brewing. And I love my funny stuff. I hope it's not confusing. Like he has this this song, The Antagonist, about right. how like, and he, he says in the song, he's like, the song is for me. This is because people who are outside of this world aren't going to get it. But I remember hearing that and it really resonated with me because I was like, damn, Dickie, you wouldn't listen to your own, this album. But to me, 
it changed everything. Right. So it's sort of, it's sort of an artist's responsibility in a way to not worry about making the music that they want to listen to, but to make the music that only they could make because it will be the kind of music someone else wants to listen well, to. And, and yeah. I think, I think the, the authenticity trumps everything. The, the next step is trying to find where the overlap, the overlap is. And it was fucking hard, but yeah. like we've just started to get to the point where it's like, okay, it's stuff that we like to listen to, but also stuff that resonates with us. But then does that resonate with somebody else? Right. Like don't like me kind of didn't resonate with people, but it came from a very real place yeah. and like whatever. So it's it's about finding that. Yeah, I think know. I'm starting to. I think there are certain songs like we were in the car the other day. Um, Your iPhone was like connected and your music was playing and Loving You Silently came on. Yeah. And normally when my music comes on, I go, no, 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 no. And it came on and I went, huh, in this context, this is a nice song. I'm enjoying listening to this. That's a new feeling. Well, it was it was my driving playlist. Like yeah. it worked, you know. And, I, I and also, we were like, I'm not changing it before 30 seconds yeah. is up because you need Skip that. Yeah. Point zero zero three cents. I do think another thing that's like for me really affects whether or not I want to listen to my own music is if I wrote it alone or with people. Mm. Um, and I find that when I write a song alone, maybe I don't want to listen to it as much because it's just so personal and I know it inside and out. When I write a song with people, it feels more foreign and maybe I want to listen to it more, but it also, I don't really care about the song as much because it doesn't have as much emotional attachment for me. So it's sort of a trade-off, right? Of like, if I want to write a diary entry alone, like Songbird mostly was, or if I want to go into a session and make a fun song like Take This Outside that didn't really come from me. It came from a group. Well, se- session stuff is is really weird because, you know. So strange. Because you're essentially writing something that you are going to be the one to say, but. Other people have. But you're bringing people it. into the writer's room. I mean, it's, it's like you're the writer, director, actor, but you also have a writer's room for what you're going to gonna say. Mm-hmm. I think that's our job. I mean, our, a good writer gets that out. I mean, like one of the reasons we're excited about We're Fine, it's the first 100 percenter that we've put out in a while. That's why I was so know? excited about most of Songbird. Exactly. When like, First Love Never Lasts came out, I was like, I wrote this song on my guitar and you are hearing me and my guitar and like songbird i wrote it three in the morning on my balcony alone and the way you're hearing it is the way it sounded when i wrote it in 20 minutes in the middle of the night and that was really exciting for me well there's the there's the segue let's, let's do it let's get into it let's get into <gasps> are we, songbird are we doing oh, it we're, oh, we're going we're going into we're getting into songbird what i love about the opening of the record is that it is essentially a statement you, you have written an introduction that is from an essay standpoint, like this is the thesis, this is the ethos, this is the sonic space, mm-hmm. you know? So it's it's a folk atmospheric mm-hmm. track, not too many bells and whistles, just your voice doing its thing. It's, and a, it's a declaration of me returning to home a little bit. <laughs> right. Where did the concept of the songbird and like the name come from? Yeah. And then, and then sure. so, how that song's gonna be, yeah. So songbird has, a few different meanings, right? It has sort of a physical meaning. It has a little bit more of a metaphorical meaning and it has a little bit more of an emotional meaning. So- it's got layers, you know? Yeah, layers, baby, like an onion. So, <laughs> sorry. The, uh, <laughs> the the physical layer of it is Songbird. For me, it was about returning to the songs I wrote alone, the songs that were my diary entries, the songs I wrote on guitar, the songs that I thought, quote unquote, weren't cool enough when I did off-brand. So when I write session stuff, I'm in the studio, but when I write my diary songs, I always write on my balcony at my apartment. And my balcony is like my favorite place in the world. It's where I absolutely live my entire life, which is why the first lyric of the Holy P is on a balcony on a summer night. And I was sitting there playing guitar and the way my apartment complex is set up, people kind of walk by all the time. And you know, I'm only like three floors up, but people never really look up very often. But every once in a while, someone will sort of hear me playing and sort of look up and go, huh, and kind of keep walking. (laughs) And um, I'm sort of at the same level as 
was the birds. And so I just sort of was sitting there in the middle of the night playing and just making this quiet music from my guitar. And I kind of just thought, huh, like I'm like a little songbird up here. Mm. So that was sort of the, the physical element of it. I think the sort of more metaphorical element of it was, you know, I had been really concerned for a long time about what song to put out and what kind of songs to put out and what it was going to make people think of me and what effect it was going to have on the trajectory of my career and what assumptions people would make about me. And I sort of just was deciding to not really worry about that as much. And I was thinking, you know, a songbird doesn't worry about what people are going to think about the song it's singing. It just Mm -hmm. sings it because it doesn't know anything else and because it's true and it's real and it's its voice. It's the way it speaks. And these songs for me are just kind of me speaking in my own musical language. You know, they're just sentences. They're conversational for me. And so it was sort of giving myself permission to like not really worry about how people were going to perceive them and just sing my damn song. I think there were there were probably a bunch of, you know, kind of other meanings. I mean, look, you can go through the actual lyrics of the song and however deeply you want to dive into them. They very much kind of explain me as a person and the project, which I I feel like almost the, the tags at each at the end of each sort of like verse chorus structure is like the the twisting of the knife of like the sort of introspective self-realization. So there's a couple lyrics that I actually would love to kind of dissect if I can. Absolutely. So I was was gonna ask, are there any lyrics you want to dissect? So I guess guess the first one is it's depressing that the best I'll ever be is just like this. I was gonna ask you about that one. So it sounds like a really negative line at first. It sounds like, oh, it's depressing. I'll never be better than this. But that's really not what it is. The line that comes before it in one of the verses is, there's a songbird with a way of learning lessons. There's a songbird with a thing for introspection. It's depressing that the best will ever be is just like this. There's a songbird with a way of learning lessons. There's a songbird with a thing for introspection. It's depressing. That the best I'll ever be is just like this. And what that is, is I was realizing in that moment that I think genuinely the best that my music ever is, is when it's just me, some emotions and a guitar. Not to say like I'm better than anyone else who collaborates, but the the time when my music feels the most me and the time where I feel like I have something the most perhaps unique to offer is in that scenario. And so there's a songbird with a way of learning lessons is sort of a reference to love me like you hate me. And like I had to put out a song that I didn't really want to have out into the world and feel that anxiety and everything that came with it and then watch people like it in order to sort of like learn a lesson about like, okay, what kind of music do I want to represent me versus what's just music you make on your own? There's a songbird with a thing for introspection. Like I'm not a singer, I'm a writer. I'm a singer too, but I really consider myself a writer first. And that's really important to me as an artist. And then it's depressing that the best I'll ever be is just like this is like, it's depressing that it took me this long to realize that. And I spent so much time and money and effort (laughs) trying to cover myself with all of these barriers, barriers of backup dancers and sparkly costumes and pyrotechnics and 808s to hide me when I was like, damn, maybe the best that I'll ever be is just like this, just sitting on my balcony right. with my guitar, singing my song. So <laughs> that's that lyric. And then there's a songbird on a mountain of expecting. There's a songbird to a crowd so unexpected. There's a songbird on a mountain of expecting. There's a songbird to a crowd so unexpected. 
me, right? Mm -hmm. So like I'm here and people have all of these expectations about me and all of these preconceived notions. And now I'm giving you this piece of art that's completely unexpected to you guys. Nobody knows that this is what I actually do, especially after off brand and after Thundermans and whatever. It also sort of is a little bit of a slight physical reference to the people walking around my apartment complex who hear the music and go, where's that coming from? (laughs) And not expecting crowd. In the intro of the song, is all that ambient stuff your... No, I I tried to record it at my place and unfortunately there were just too many like garbage trucks or whatever else. So that's actually sounds that we pulled from New York because the majority of the Songbird album is about moving on from a relationship that happened for me in New York. Right. And that's a, an integral part of the record. And I wanted it to sound like I was on a fire escape mm-hmm. in New York, um, which is kind of where I fell in kind love of like a little bit. Breakfast at Tiffany's a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, it was also a little bit inspired by, by Billie Eilish's record at the end of When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We yeah. Go with the sirens and stuff. That that siren at the end of the song is actually my voice. Oh, wow. Because um, we couldn't find a good siren. So I just... <laughs> That's that's crazy. Thank you. And then I guess the other one that I think is really important is there's a songbird on a wave of first impressions. There's a songbird on a wave of first impressions. That was the one that that hit me, I think, the most is that like every time you put out something, that's somebody's first time. Yeah. Like every time you meet somebody, we've had this sort of joke in the group of like making old friends. Yeah. Like the idea that like you have this opportunity when you meet anybody to meet somebody who you might know for a very, very long time. Right. And yeah, like for, first impressions, people are like, oh, first impressions don't count. Yeah. I'm like, I, actually for us, like there was like four yeah. or five, but it's like, but that's the thing is when you, when you put yourself out there, you are making an impression, you know, and, and, it, it's, and it is like a wave. Especially you know? because yeah. also, you know, people knew me as a character and mm. music is really a one way to introduce people to you as a person. Also, I just really like that the song lives in two planes. It lives in a physical plane and an emotional plane, you know, a songbird on a mountain, a songbird on a wave. Right. You know, like it's a very physical mm. visual idea. And then it's also a mountain of pressure or a wave of a surge of things coming right. at me. You know, it, it's sort of, damn, I'm kind of proud of this song now that I'm talking about this out loud. Like, <laughs> I forgot about what went into this, especially because it all, I genuinely, I wrote this song in about 20 minutes in well, the middle of the night. People don't realize like oftentimes if, if you're really feeling a song, it pours out and it's your brain trying to say, it's like a dream almost. Yeah. Like, we're, we're like, sometimes you're like, oh my God, there's like so many metaphors in this dream, but also like, yeah, at totally. first you're kind of like, okay, well that line just sounded nice. And then like, and then you like, you, you, you take it apart and you're like, oh my God, like, like my brain knew this, but it took me two months or three months or, you know, to actually realize what my brain was trying to tell me. Yeah. When a song pours out of you, you know, and also you could sometimes just like freestyle. So I've heard you just like come up with, with stuff, but like clearly it's like, you know, the gears, like the gears are turning, yeah. you know? So yeah, um, that's, that's songbird. You want to move it on to FaceTime? Oh, uh, yes. This is, this is great. Well, what I, what I love about FaceTime is... Um, FaceTime's got a funny funny development story, actually. Noah described to me this experience, and maybe Noah, you can parse through this a little bit too. When you are in a long-distance relationship, I was I was in a long-distance relationship with somebody in Chicago. Uh, that oh, I ended, know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you know everything now. Uh, and so much of that relationship took place over FaceTime, and Noah referred to that space as the third room. You know, like that. Because in that moment, you stop being wherever you are. You're not just, it's not just you in your bedroom and them in their bedroom. It's like you occupy, it feels different. Like, you know that moment when you hang up the phone? Yeah. Like uh, when you're on a call with someone and all of a sudden, like, it's like the air gets sucked out of the room. It's like something changes. Like fundamentally, there's like a difference in energy once once that call stops. Because like when you're in that space with someone, it's really like you're in a different place with them. Totally. That's why the cover art, that's why the cover art of FaceTime, so the cover art of Songbird is, 
I'm kind of a bird falling through the sky and um, the cover art of FaceTime is falling through cyberspace. Mm. Right, right. Well, that's that's the thing is like, and I, I've, I've never heard somebody described as like the air just like, but you're totally right. It's, it's like you suddenly, it. it's like you've suddenly like woken up in a different room. You're like, how did I get here? Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. So um, but yeah, I can how go that into, song come to right, be? Yeah. So I, I'll go, I can go into sort of the, the lyricism and stuff in a minute, but first I'll just start with one of the reasons that I didn't put out the songs I had written acoustically for so long is because it's really hard to find producers who are willing to take an already existing song and then build a track around it. Like everyone wants publishing. Everyone wants to start something new. No one wants to be tied to whatever chord progression you did, especially (laughs) because mine are always, because I write music and lyrics simultaneously. It's not like an easy top line track where you have four chords and then you just loop it. It's like my songs are kind of, they, they, they take an ebb and a flow and that's annoying for a producer. Our niche is uh, any producer that, that is like, oh, I don't want to do that. We're like, we'll take all of you. Perfect, like, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I found this, you know, somebody who was super willing and excited to do that. He loved these songs I had written and uh, Cooper, Holtz, Cooper yeah. who, who did vinyl. And so I came to Cooper with like, hey, I wrote a bunch of songs and I think FaceTime was the first one that I brought to him. And I was like, hey, I wrote the song on the piano. It's really slow and sad and I'm not really sure what to do with it. And he was like, what if we put it on electric guitar? Or maybe I had already like moved it to guitar and was playing it. But either way, he like infused a new energy into it. I mean, that riff is wild. Thank you. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I remember like that was the hearing FaceTime was the first time that I was like, oh, these older songs that I felt like I'd quote unquote outgrown can totally take on a new life that feels very current to me. And that was really exciting. So FaceTime in a way was the beginning of producing the Songbird project. Loving You Silently was the song that I wrote and Loving You Silently and Songbird were the songs that I wrote where I went, oh, these are going to be the heart of a new project. And then I pulled the other songs in. But FaceTime was the first one we produced. God, I think I think FaceTime might be... FaceTime is up there on, on lyrics I'm most proud of. Oh, oh, so this is the other thing about FaceTime, the writing process. So the song is about essentially... I fell in love with somebody over FaceTime. We were friends. We had only met in person like two or three times. And we just all of a sudden were FaceTiming three hours a day every day and just <laughs> realized, I knew the day I met him that we were going to be soulmates in some way. I just didn't know if it was going to be in friendship or in romance or neither or both. Oof, haven't talked about this in a minute. Um, yeah, and I woke up the morning after a call where we had been not sober and gone just like one step further than usual into like, you realize how I feel, right? I think maybe one of us had almost dropped the L word or one of us had mentioned that we were had gone on a date and spent the whole time thinking about the other. But it was just one of those the adrenaline and the intoxication together made it so that I woke up and I really was like, what, what (laughs) happened last night? Like, I know that I spilled the beans and I know that he knows now that I'm really invested in this relationship, whatever it is. And so that's, that's what the first verse of like, I can't remember what I said last night, but I think it went something like, I want you and I don't want to. (laughs) I don't remember what I said last night, but there had to be a reason why I called you. I can't remember what I said last night. But there had to be a reason why I called you Had to talk to you I spilled my heart on a FaceTime Wish I didn't though to tell you the truth Because now there's no more playing it cool Like now mm. now there's, there's no going back So my heart on a FaceTime And it's killing me to tell you the truth Because now you know I'm thinking about you I spilled my heart on a FaceTime Wish I didn't though to tell you the truth Because now there's no more playing it
So I wrote all of that um, the morning after it happened. And then I probably wrote the second verse later that day. And then I didn't write the bridge until three years later. <laughs> I knew I needed. We, we can relate. I, I... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I knew it needed something. And I think actually what happened is my dad was in the studio. He helps, you know, engineer my vocals and stuff. And my dad was in the studio and I was coming into the studio with him so we could record guitar and vocals um, to send to Cooper to mm-hmm. work on. And my dad was just improvising on the piano and it just hit an emotional nerve that took me back to that day where it had happened. And I was like, don't stop playing that. He was like, what? Don't you need to work? And I was like, shut up. Don't stop playing that. <laughs> Keep playing that chord progression. And I just sat there and got into like super intense writer mode. And I wrote this bridge that I think now is probably my favorite piece of music <laughs> I've ever written. But yeah, it's it's where do we go from here? We all know there's no going back. Tried once, but it wouldn't last. I'm scared. Was it even real? Like, did I even say what I thought right. I said? Does anybody have a crystal ball or did I already risk it all? Like, did I already completely destroy this? I still don't know how to feel. I'm not even sure if I'm happy that this happened or not. Been a long time on my own. Don't know what I even wanted to hear. I didn't want to be in a relationship and right. we were in a long distance thing. So I was like, why do I even need him to know how I feel about him? If nothing if a, can if even a, come yeah, of it, nor right. do I even really want anything to come of it. So yeah, that song is super, super emotional for me. It's also the last time that I saw him in New York, I played a show and he came and I sang that song in front of him for the first time. And how did he react? He loved it. It was a really special moment. And then things quickly crumbled and became <laughs> you know, arguably the biggest heartbreak of my life. Um, but, you know, I got the songs out of it. So. There, There is definitely like a, a weird and wild experience about playing a song you have that has been birthed by an interaction you have with somebody for the person who inspired that interaction. Like that's... Yeah. It happened to me yesterday. <laughs> I literally wrote a song about someone and sent it to them yesterday. And it was such a strange experience. <laughs> well, especially too, because we know how to interact in... Real life, but when, real the, life. when the body language cues are taken away, it makes things really hard. Well, and also I feel the third room accelerates time. Like I mm-hmm. feel like when you go on a date with somebody, at best maybe you're, you know, you're you're there for like an hour or two or like whatever. But when you're in the third room with somebody, you're there for hours and you're there for hours potentially every day. So all of a sudden you're on an accelerated course of oh, love yeah. town, you know, like. And, oh, yeah. Because all you can do is talk. Yeah. You know, it's like it's, it's like pure emotion. Right. So, it's not, you know, you're not watching movies together or like eating right. meals or all the other stuff that gets in the middle of regular dating. Yeah. I think you also like when you're on a FaceTime, right, you inherently have less vulnerability because you have less human touch and connection yeah. and you crave that vulnerability. And so it pushes you to go even further sometimes right, right. in the connection of like friendship or love or whatever else. Well, and it's also because it's not conventional because there is not that like physical element. It's a it's a, an insane choice. Like you you are constantly making a choice. Yeah. You know, and I and I feel like that that choice 
is what is indicative of, you know, and you know, like my, my definition of love is just like choosing somebody and like wanting them in your future. So if like, right. oh, I've chosen to talk to you for three hours every day, like, should I just call it what it is? Like, yeah, you know? there is also, I think, a little bit of like a weird pseudo dependence that can form there because mm-hmm. you get to have the benefits of connection with the independence that you want. Yeah. Because whenever you're done, you don't have to make an excuse to leave. You just hang up. Right. You know what I mean? And so that also kind of makes things strange um, and then the air leaves the room yeah <laughs> the next one is first love never last i like which, you doing this in order i yeah i was i was thinking like you know knowing I really you, hard on the order of exactly. the song it's really there was, important there was a reason why i went through um, first love never last was the first song that i dropped after it had been a year and a half since i had really dropped music well not that was like right when things were were starting up in corona yeah right? well i i had planned this rollout and then kind of was toying with the idea of not doing the rollout and then this was this this was me deciding like let's just let's just do it i also because i was like you know i don't have access to people to help me and film things and whatever but if this whole record is about being as me as possible, why not just do it myself? Well, and what I love about uh, like conceptually, like first love never lasts, is like this idea of how people move on. It's like are trying to find like these like replacement versions of. So you know, like here's the thing with first love never lasts: the actual meaning of the song was the old chorus, and we changed it and wrote a new chorus, and so the actual meaning of the song isn't in the song anymore, <laughs> and it takes on a new meaning. Uh, so this song started when I was like 18, had just broken up with my boyfriend and the, the, the verses, yeah, I got a new boy who looks like you, dark brown hair with a cool tattoo, he's got green eyes that fade blue, I tell him that I love him but I know it ain't true, which I hadn't really started dating someone but I was like having crushes on people who right. looked like him. And then, yeah, you got a new girl who looks like me, nothing in her head but she's so damn pretty with the brown <laughs> eyes, she looks at you, you tell her that you love her but I know it ain't true. and. It wasn't really true, but I knew he had a crush on a girl who looked like me. So right. it was sort of that kind of a thing. And I just thought it was a sweet little like verse that I was really proud of. And I wrote it in my parents' house when I was like a, literally a teenager. And then it just it just sat in my notes for years. And then I came back a couple years later and we I wrote the song with a couple people. So the original chorus was, I keep trying to chase how it was because his name was Chase. Oh, but nice. how do you replace your first love? Mm. And that was the song about is was about is how do you replace your first love? And then in this new session, we ended up writing, I wanted to be your first and last, but baby, that first love never lasts. Just because right. we thought it was like a cool play on words. And I also just like the, you know, why do we act like this works? Are we just making it worse? And the whole reason that that riff exists is because when we wrote that song, that part of the song, I was obsessed with again and honey by Kehlani oh, yeah. and I was obsessed with the fact that she changed the riff slightly every time she sang it and I would sit in my car for hours matching her riffs perfectly <laughs> which is why a lot of my riffs are very similar to hers because <laughs> she her and her and SZA were who I was really listening to when right. I started recording music and really finding my own vocal sound and so for a minute I sounded kind well, of like, and tying you know, into like what is what would you listen to versus right, like right, who right. are you but yeah so the whole the that whole pre-chorus is fully because of Kehlani's again <laughs> I give her all, all the credit there well but, but again what I do like about that that chorus and like about like that that idea you know is that you know when it comes to moving on when it comes to the people you end up being it is in a sense a kind of version control like it's like you are either like with somebody who has these similarities to that person are different or is completely different. Right. And, but there's always, there's always going to be some comparative at the early. Right. You know? Right. Well, that's why, I mean, I think probably my favorite lyric in that song is got me in bed with a stranger with somebody who looks like you. Got me in bed with a stranger with somebody who looks like you. 
Yeah. Because you, when you crave yeah. that familiarity, like when you miss that, you'll take the diet version of it. Right. right. You'll, right. I'll take the sugar for you. Yeah. The the, the store Is that brand. A song? The sugar free dibs. Dibs. I mean, you can have it. Yeah. Let's do it together. Yeah. Let's do okay. it. The generic version. Wait, yeah, we have it for on, on for posterity. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> So that's first love never last. And that was that was another song. Like, cause after we finished FaceTime, I was like, Cooper, you've done it. This is my favorite thing ever. And then when we started working on First Love, we worked on it for a couple hours together. And he was like, Hey dude, like, can you like let me work on this without you being here? Cause like I want to try some weird experimental shit. And like he, you know, he's always like, I feel right. bad that you're just sitting there watching. And I'm like, I'm learning how to produce. So I love watching this. But like, sure, I'll give you your space. And I went home. And that night I was right about to fall asleep and he sent it to me at like 1.30 in the morning. I was like, oh, yo, I forgot to bounce you this earlier. Here you go. And I listened to it and I started crying. <laughs> and because it was really a song that two months earlier, I had told the guys I wrote it with to give it to somebody else. Pitch it. Oh, I don't wow. really care about it. Whatever. I performed it a bunch. It was always fun to perform. But like, you know, I just felt like I had outgrown it. And then he sent me this track and all of a sudden I went, whoa, this is the first time I've really heard me on a record. Like I would mm. show this song to anybody and go, you want to know who I am as a songwriter? You want to know what my voice sounds like and what my vocals sound like and what my guitar writing <laughs> sounds like? Here. So well, that was exciting to me. It was also the first single. Like That was why it was the first yeah, single. Yeah, like what was that response like? What was it like? Oh, is it, you know. It was crazy. Was it what you expected? Well, you know, people, like people had no idea what to expect from me because they either didn't know my music and knew me as Phoebe or knew me from off brand, right. which is a very dark, edgy, sexy, you know, R&B, hip hop, trap kind of record. So I think it really surprised people how like, how light and airy and kind of girly and kind of sweet it was sonically. Cause that's something that I decided to no longer be afraid of. I right. realized that that was my own internalized sexism thinking that I couldn't do something wearing pink and being sweet and right. still be a badass. You know what I mean? So, um, Cause don't get it twisted. So well, the, the, the badassness of vulnerability. Exactly. Like the, yeah. Exactly. Well, that's yeah. so. So <laughs> <laughs> while I was working on the Songbird project before I wrote the song Songbird, the code name for it in my phone was "Bad Bitches Have Feelings." Yo, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, because the first album, like the fans, and we would all call it uh, "Bad Bitch Anthems." So then we were gonna call the second record "Bad Bitches Have Feelings." I mean, you could you could put that on a shirt. Yeah, I, I honestly, that's that's a great idea. Um, I'll take five percent. The, the Songbird yeah. merch is about to sell out, so hell yeah, "Bad Bitches Have Feelings." But um, so that was kind of why I wanted to start with that one. I also just like I think it's my favorite vocal performance on the record. I just really liked the way that that recording came out. I think it sat in a really cool place in my voice. And it was also, I think I recorded it right when I had just started training with Eric Vitro. And he was like, I, my vocals were getting really strong. I was really starting to like take seriously my my instrument and cut out some habits that were not necessarily great for my vocal cords and you know teach us <laughs> so, yeah i got you i got you the next song is something to look forward to and yeah. so this uh, song doesn't really fit on the record <laughs> no, but here's the but thing. i'm glad I, it's there i sort of disagree though and i know i know it's your record but i've had a relationship with it now yeah. like i think what, what's so interesting about something to look forward to especially as this sort of middle track is that like if songbird like the intro is okay I'm moving on from this sort of like superficial world that I was living in. I'm moving on from thinking I need to be this brand or that brand or whatever. And then you're, and then the ending part of that thesis being, and you're going to see that through the story of a relationship that didn't work out. There still is the B plot of I had to move on from this thing and something to look forward to. I think harps on that. When people ask me what the record Songbird is about, I say it's about falling in and out of 
love with a person, with life and with music. And so some of the songs are about falling in and out of love with a person and something to look forward to is the song that's about falling in and out of love uh, with life and music. And it's nothing's really wrong, but nothing's really right. I can turn it on, but after hours, I don't want to smile no more. Not until I know what's for. Nothing's really wrong, but nothing's really right. I can turn it on, but after hours, I don't want to smile no more. Not until I know. That's the thing. It's the after hours thing that really strikes me. It's that it's that the, actually, the idea of that. That actually that phrase is a credit to Rachel West. She, hey. So so let me tell you the story of that. Yeah, song, of course. Because I think that's kind of integral to what that song is to me. So I had a session with a producer that I had never worked with before, and I was a little nervous about it. And he was like, I don't really write. So you're welcome to write alone. Or if you want to bring a writer in that you really like, go for it. And I had just written like four songs that I loved that aren't out yet that I'll still probably release at some point with this this writer, Rachel West, who's just absolutely lovely. I just adore her. And uh, I was like, hey girl, I have a session. Come write with me. I woke up that morning with a lot of anxiety. And that's something that I kind of just struggle with as it is, you know, just it's part of my body's chemistry, whatever. I was dealing with that. Also, my dad had just gotten really ill and I was dealing with that and just a lot of uncertainty. And I had been doing a lot of sessions and making a lot of music and had no idea what I wanted to release or what I wanted to do next. And I was so tied up with this idea that I just wasn't where I wanted to be as a musician yet. And I wasn't really enjoying acting anymore. And I was just kind of getting into a a tough spot. And I got to the session thinking everything was going to be fine. And we just kind of had a little bit of a sticky point getting the chemistry going. You know how that is. Sometimes you just have a session that just doesn't flow. And I broke down crying. Oh, wow. And they both kind of saw me and were like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's (laughs) what's happening? Like they were like, are you are you good? And I was like, honestly, no, I, I need to go. And Rachel was like, hold on. Talk to me. What's what's going on? Like why? That's, are, that's a good songwriter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was like, "Why are you not okay?" And I I threw through tears and bated breath and a quivering lip, sort of kind of explained how I was feeling. I, I literally said to her, "I was like, I'm sorry. Like, I don't want to be sad again today," which is now the first lyric of the song. And I was like, "I don't want to make you guys have a bad day. Like, I've just I've really been not very happy lately, and I don't really know why I'm making all these demos and not really caring about them or knowing what to do. And like, I don't know, maybe it's just like a phase I'm going through. Like I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. So that's the second verse is, you know, so why am I scared that it could all be going nowhere? And I said too, I was like, I feel like an idiot crying right now because I objectively have a great life. Like nothing's really wrong. It's just like, I, I don't really have anything to look forward to. I feel like I'm on this treadmill. So I'm just, if you listen to the song, yeah, like I'm saying this, I'm saying this. And she's just sitting there going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Look at this. And she turns her laptop <laughs> to me. Right. And she's essentially written the song. I mean, granted, we, we we co-wrote a good bit of it, but I will give that woman her props. She took my mental breakdown and turned it into a stunning track. Uh, some of the, the vocals from the original session are actually in the final track because I was crying as I was singing it. I was like, you guys, I can't sing it. She's like, sing it. Well, so You sound great. And so they're in there. So I, I love that story because it's always been my my ethos. Like we go on walks, we eat, we sit on the balcony, we talk because if somebody wants to say something, they will wind up saying it. Like some of my favorite songs of ours, but also that we've written for other people have actually just come from the conversations that we have. And I think yeah. like the mark of a strong songwriter is just letting somebody, especially if they're feeling really intensely about something, just go. And you know, when you think about how often you and I have just like, 
said solid lines. I was on the phone with Max and I said, um, you know, it's, it sounds like they're holding a grudge for the convenience of it. And he's yeah. like, write that down. Yeah. You know, it's just like, oh yeah, I can't tell you how often we'll be like, that's a lyric. That's a lyric, write it down. You know, it's um, just like, that's, but it's also what, what I really love about this song specifically, other than the fact that like it, it came out, you know, kind of in the middle of this quarantine where we're like, oh, we all need something to look right. forward well, to. Well, that's one yeah. of the funny things about the Songbird record is that a couple of the songs came out during quarantine. People thought they were about quarantine, even though I'd written them four years earlier, like FaceTime right. and something to look forward to. I was like, <laughs> nah, dude, this came from years ago. It, what's, what is interesting is that, uh, and I don't know if you even necessarily know this, but like uh, something to look forward to was kind of like a turning point in how I saw you as an artist. I fully know why. Because we were, you know, like, like you know, we, we didn't really talk that much about, like, we, we were mostly just trying to stay staying in the quarantine, but you, somewhat later one night, you texted me, you're like, I don't know which mix is the right mix. I, I ended up in this very strange situation where I had a mixer who was very talented and he did his idea of the mix and it was great. And then the producer who produced the song was like, hey dude, not sure if you're having anybody mix this, but I made a mix of the song. And they were so different that they felt like two different songs. And there were pieces that I objectively liked better from one and pieces that I objectively liked better from two, but I didn't really understand how mixing worked. I mean, in the past six months making the Songbird Project, the amount I've learned about mixing is absolutely insane because I really started from nothing. And going through this process, I really had to learn like how to pick out exactly what it is that I'm hearing that's different and why it's different and how to change it. But then with mixing, as obviously you know, everything you change changes everything else because volume, frequency, pitch, it's all relative. Right. So I ended up getting into this really stressful process where this song meant so much to me. And I was having people in my ear saying, this song's going to be huge. It's coming out during quarantine. It's got to be perfect. So I started panicking and being like, okay, I have to make this perfect. And you know me, I don't like putting people in bad positions. And I I don't like making people do more work than they thought they were going to for the amount they're getting paid. And (laughs) I don't like having to tell someone, hey, I like someone else's version of this thing that you made better. And like, it just became this unbelievably stressful process where I was just, I just felt like I was gonna throw up all day, every day. And so I think I turned to you because I kind of thought, okay, who's gonna be able to understand, A, the issues that I'm having as a human, worrying about causing other people problems, and is going to have the technical know-how to really help me understand what I'm hearing that's different. Well, you had you had your original vocals, which had all the emotion of right. of the day one session. I had and, the new vocals the new that vocals, were recorded much better. But also, you know, you weren't in that space. My We've, dad preferred the new vocals, and I hold his opinion in really high esteem, but I really preferred the old vocals. But then the more I listened to it, I couldn't trust my own opinion anymore. And then we got the mixes, which were different, and different vocals. Well, and we, like, we've been, like, all also say is we've been there. Like, we yeah. had so much demo love, like, day one stuff like you know I I don't know how much at the end of the day of like we're fine or you know butterflies is like we we tend to like Frankenstein stuff all the time but but I think what really hit me like you're not giving yourself enough credit when you sent me those two mixes like you heard the difference and I heard the difference but that wasn't it was a mixing difference like it was a on a very technical level very specific frequency thing and I remember I remember hearing it I don't have good ears. I've actually spent mm-hmm. a good chunk of the quarantine actually trying to get better. I was almost nervous when you sent it to me because I, I first listened, I, I couldn't hear the differences. Yeah, but then you and sent then me I, like a PDF breakdown <laughs> that would like give yourself a little credit, bro. Well, but, th- but that was the thing is like, it hit me in that moment that I'm like, not only does she like 
care about her music on like like a like a molecular level. Yeah. But also she can hear shit. Mm-hmm. Like she knows what like she knows her Thanks. stuff. And you know, I, I feel like, and it's not just like you. Like I feel like in general, I, I like underestimate everybody or whatever. But it really, really hit me how much you care about your music, but also how technically savvy you are and being able to hear the differences in it. I think the way that I handled that mix was a big turning point for me in terms of the Songbird record and in terms of my career as an artist in general, because I was faced with a turning point where I went, okay, this version of the song is maybe arguably technically better in certain ways. This version of the song is maybe arguably more commercial in certain ways. You know, the version that's a little bit more epic and big and grand. And then this version is a little bit more understated and a little bit more melancholy. And I think it speaks to the emotion of the song more and it speaks more to what I wanted this song to be in the first place. And I had to really make this conscious choice of like, you know, my A&R and my dad really like this big, epic, grand version. And they're telling me it could be great for sync, but there's just something in me that's telling me that this version represents what this song was meant to be. Right. And that was the choice I eventually made. Well, I, I was and really that was proud huge you for to me. Thank like, you. Yeah, really I'm cool. still shocked yeah. that I did that, and I'm very, very glad that I did. Well, I remember we uh, we you know got into a kind of discussion about what the bridge was was like, what the bridge was doing. Yeah, you know, oh, is, the, right. is the bridge this like uh, workout at the gym, like big old massive like thing, or is it like okay, I'm feeling this way, and I'm. I'm actually going to be mad for a moment right, so, and slowly feel that. Right, so you know? more, more specifically, if you haven't heard the song, the bridge is literally just one lyric repeated and it's, when will I get off this treadmill I'm running on? When will I get off this treadmill I'm running on? Bet that I'm losing my head, but I carry on. When will I get off this treadmill I'm running on? Bet that I'm losing my head, but I carry on. When will I get off this treadmill I'm running on? Bet that I'm losing my head, but I carry on. When In one of the mixes, it was very vocal forward, you know, which is very simple. Just here are stacking vocals. And then in the other mix, he had added these or pumped up the risers and, you know, all of the other atmospheric elements and it from the jump from the jump. And so it was a much bigger, I guess, arguably more exciting, arguably kind of more chaotic thing. And I had to sort of come back to like, in a literal sense, this bridge is about the voices in your head multiplying to where the noise in your head is so loud that you can't think. Right. I have to make that what this part of the song sounds like because that's the meaning behind it, even though the other one maybe sounds cooler. Well, that was what was fun about the discussion. We were going back and forth, you know, about like, is is a bridge meant to carry the energy from, you know, point A to point B or is the, the point of the bridge to like recontextualize the song so the last right. chorus hits a different way? Well, so yeah. that's, well, that's the other thing though. It's interesting that you just said that because there is no last chorus. It's a down chorus. Right. It's technically an outro. And that was also, I had a conversation with um, my friend Cal from Time Flies, right. who he's always sort of been like like my big brother in this industry. And like, I, I hold his opinion. He, he gave us some esteem. of our first piece of advice, like yeah, when yeah. we first started. We talked like, about yeah. this. It's like a funny yeah. connection we have. But um, he was like, oh man, I really want another big, big chorus after that bridge. And I was like, I know you do. But that's that's the point of this is you want you want something to look forward to, don't you? Mm. You want a you want a third chorus to look forward to, and that's <laughs> not what this song is about. This song is about things keep getting bigger and bigger, and there's no, it, it's meant to be anticlimactic because mm. that's what the song is about. Well, and that's that's why it, like. There's almost a Broadway element to it. Totally, it's like, totally. It's like end of first act of like how big, do you big, get big, 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 and then you're drop. Yeah, then you're like, oh, and then crap. all of a sudden you're alone. And it's also because it's about the voices get louder and louder and louder in your head, and then you shut them up, and you realize you're all alone, yeah. and you never feel more lonely than when you suddenly 
realize you're alone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when it's that that out of nowhere realization. That's like incidentally one of my one of my favorite songs on the record, j- just Thank because you. of of how much it like hit me at the moment when like when when I first yeah. heard it. Also like where it contextualizes our our friendship, but also because. It is a state, like an artistic statement. It's like you, you made decisions. Yeah. Um, for anybody you know? who's who's listening, um, if you're so inclined for a visual, the music video for that is really interesting because we shot it in my parents' living room <laughs> right at the beginning of quarantine when it was like literally you can't have people around. And both of my parents had COVID. So it was really stressful because we had to quarantine them off, clean oh, everything. Wow. And then I had one director, camera operator come in and we just made it happen in my parents' living room, starring my mom's beautiful candle collection. And at first I was really sad because I had this whole idea of like a theater and a stage. It was gonna be this big grand sweeping video with big, beautiful cinematic shots. And instead it became this kind of intimate video where you don't really ever see my face all that closely. But I love that because it's on the piano that I grew up writing music on. And it's it's almost voyeuristic in a way. It's like you're watching me in a very kind of quiet, vulnerable moment playing for myself. And I'm I'm happy that that was what it turned out to be. Well, I, I appreciate the importance that you put on the visual element. Like I know each song had had this visual element. And oh, this, like peace. Yeah. That was something we didn't talk about with First Still Never Last that I meant to. So I knew I wanted a visual for it, but it was really the beginning of quarantine. And it was really at the beginning of me figuring out how much of this project I could do DIY. So I didn't tell anybody. I took my guitar and I hiked up like a half a mile up to the landing of my favorite hike in LA. And I got there at six o'clock and I just recorded myself in different settings, in different positions, playing the song from six o'clock to midnight, literally just over and over with my laptop and a speaker and my phone. And that was it. And I recorded these takes and I ended up getting home and I found one and I sent it to my friend, Emma, who's an incredible graphic designer. And she's done some work for me in the past. And I told her what the original music video was supposed to be. Cause we were supposed to shoot the video the second day of quarantine. Right. The video shoot getting canceled was for me, the first indication of how serious this pandemic right. was. That was my first like, oh, this really, can't happen. Like I can't have 12 people in a room together. This is that real. So I told Emma all of the elements that were going to be in the music video and she animated them. So the video is me sitting on my favorite mountaintop. I told her it was going to be a bonfire with friends and all of the (laughs) things that were going to happen in the video, like fireworks, friends kissing, toasting marshmallows, whatever. And she then animated them into this really beautiful, sweet little video that's just made on my iPhone. And I'm really happy with it. Well, and it's, it's so awesome. I also love that like her style and like the way that you guys have worked together has gone through the whole project. Like there's a sort of consistency. So we've sort of made a joke because we both have been learning so much. Like I I literally cannot overstate how much I freaking stan Emma Coomer. Like I am an (laughs) Emma Bianca Coomer stan. She's so talented and sweet and just loves making things. She really does what she does because she loves it. And that's such a beautiful quality to me. And she's so talented and creative and lovely to work with and collaborative. I just, I can't, I can't speak highly enough of her. She's been learning a lot of new techniques during this process in order to help implement my ideas. And I've gotten really fairly good at expressing what I want from a visual project. I've learned how to speak in text and graphic design and (laughs) color palette and font and, you know, Photoshop language and whatever else. And so we've been calling this Songbird University. Like we've been saying, like we've been going through Songbird U together. And like, I'd be like, all right, like you have a new thesis project for your third semester. Like, can we make, can we make, yeah. And then when I sent her, I sent her obviously like before I even put the merch on sale, I sent her a Songbird hoodie because she designed it. Like, and I was like, here, now you have your college hoodie, like your Songbird University Mm -hmm. merch. I'm going to shout out the vinyl because I know the, uh, the liner notes, like, 
like the uh, the lyrics on the inside sleeve has a bunch of her art on it. Which as you know, well, because so. I was with you the night that we were working on it, and I kept showing you all the different versions and the doodles. Yes, she also well, she did all of the all of the writing on the cover arts, and then uh, Jeff Kepler did the artwork. That was, I think, uh, the other thing that made Songbird a really special project to me is that we really like I had a very specific visual world in mind Mm -hmm. and it was the first time I've ever had an idea figured out how to execute it and then executed it like I said that's the artist thing right right so like if you get a chance to look at the the cover arts they're all on my Spotify each one of them has a meaning that ties to the song so first love never lasts the first one it's a sunset which is a beautiful thing that disappears like your first love the second one is something to look forward to in the middle of the night which is when you're waiting for the light to come in it's a really dark moment and then the third one was Loving You Silently and it's uh, Sunrise, which is like the beginning of a new day. And that's right. what that song is about. So yeah, I just, and then FaceTime is flying through cyberspace. So I was oh, well, happy with how that turned out. One, what's really uh, cool about like watching this process go along is that like, you know, I, I, I've been, I, we've been in our different plans university, but we, we you know, I guess we're brother school, sister schools, you know, like, totally. like we, uh, we're, we're both playing soccer at the same time, you know, we, we're sharing the field, but I, I feel like we, you know, we've been able to learn like from each other based, like we were both doing, um, canvas stuff or like oh, yeah, you filter me, stuff. You like, taught me how to do the canvas stuff and I helped you with the with Instagram the filter, filter yeah, stuff. You know, so we were just sort of like bouncing like ideas, like back and forth. So I, I just sort of want to thank you for going thank through the you. process kind of like you know, in parallel. Um, and yeah, it's been really special. Like I said, you know, Songbird releasing to me was the end of an era. It was the end of a period of my life with a boy. It was the end of a period of my life with music. It was like kind of a new beginning for me. And so the fact that the release process kind of got to take place in this even new, new beginning is really special. Like you're always going to be connected to this record. To well, me. and in, in our world, like different plans, like we had another EP we were going to put out this mm-hmm. year and instead we put out we're putting out different plans and it was an accident, right? It, it was, was like, an accident. Yeah. yeah it's like, supposed to be a side project. And instead it's my favorite music in the fucking world right <laughs> it now. It was, it was the, the songs that haunted us. There were the songs we never had time for that. Now we suddenly had time for. It's a great but, title too. <laughs> you know, let's, you'll put out songs that haunted us. I'll put out bad bitches have feelings. Hey, mm. let's do it. Let's do it. But yeah, that's the thing is like, you know, we, if this were a chat, the title would have to be bad bitches have feelings. I mean, we got to get you on a chat too. Let's that's do the- it. <laughs> All we do is chat. Let's go. <laughs> no, but what is interesting is like, it's called different plans because I thought my year was going to go one way and it didn't. Like we were supposed to travel. We were supposed to, I mean, this time we were supposed to be in Rome and London, whatever, and we're not. And what is so funny is that like in the same way that we've been, become a part of this record for you, you become a re- part of this record for us because our different plan is that we all became friends. Yeah, yeah like, absolutely. I, I, don't, I don't think that would have, we all would have been traveling. There's also and- kind of two different plans, right? At least for me, the first one was, oh, the world is shutting down. I'm losing all of my things that are important to me. I'm struggling. I'm having the worst time in, in that I can imagine to now I've had objectively the best month of my entire life without <laughs> a question. And you guys are a huge part of that. So. Uh, I love that. We're all giving each other something to look forward to. That's Aww. like, you know, just yeah. like the, the, the idea that when all of this is over, we will, you know, still remember each other and yeah. still, you know, and that these, these songs can exist for the, people and their time capsules for us outside of just making the songs right. or, outside of, or outside of the, you know, heartache that made the songs, you know, they, there's these positive spins to it. Well, um, that's, I mean, loving you silently. It's the epilogue. You got the epilogue. You've got, you've got, uh, the outro, you know, in a, in a sense, but it's the know, last, it's the, the last lyric of loving you silently. And thus the last lyric of songbird is, and now I'll be saying goodbye. Like, that's, that's the, that's <laughs> the, the line. it's a, it's Eliza looking into See the See you later, light. folks. Yeah. It's a pull, pull on the ear. <laughs> that's cur- yeah. all, folks. 
folks. That's right. all, folks. Thank you. <laughs> Tell me about that song. You know, the, how, why why end with that, and what inspired that? <sighs> She's time traveling. Yeah. So, so loving you silently was, I, this 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 digital relationship that happened in FaceTime. We never really were together. And yet it was without a doubt one of the most intense, passionate loves I've ever felt in my life. And I I still truly believe he is and was a soulmate and always will be as much as I believe in soulmates. Like, I don't think we're meant to be together. I don't think we were ever really meant to be together, but I think that we were integral in each other's lives. And I, I genuinely think that there are very few times I'll meet another human on this earth who I feel is seen and understood by. And I feel like I see and understand quite so much as, as this kid. And, um, we had lots of sort of moments of mini closure because we never really had closure without going too far into it. I left a trip to New York kind of thinking we were going to continue this long distance thing, not really being exclusively together, but continue this thing of being best friends and talking all day, every day and having a really vulnerable emotional connection. And he didn't want that. He decided that that was too painful and too hard. And I fully understand and respect that. I think the way that it went down was unfortunate, but mm. you know, that's how, that's how endings and breakups always are. Long distance breakups are specifically bad because all you have is social media. If you're so lucky, yes. yeah, you, know, yeah. you don't or, get closure. So yeah. because of that, this writing, this song for me was kind of my own form of closure. And I had really moved past if there was any animosity, I think I had gotten over it. And I also think he had started dating his new girl at that point, which right. I had seen that. And I sort of went, okay, I'll go on loving you silently. Meaning, I'm not going to interject. I'm not going to text you, even though I might maybe want to text you right now and let you know how I feel. I'm just going to send you good energy from afar. And that's it. I'll just go on loving you silently. So the hook is, is you know, so I'll go on loving you silently. You're not the one, but you're still a part of me. We never won and never even really got to try, right? Mm. We never really got to be together. That's the line that gets me yep. the most, yeah. So you'll go on living inside of me watch from the front instead of beside of me. So I'll go on loving you silently. You're not the one, but you're still a part of me. We never won and never even really got to try. So you go on living inside of me. Watch from the front instead. And that's sort of a reference to music because it's like you can either be in the wings watching me sing this song about you with me or you can watch in the crowd like everyone else, watch from the social media like everyone else, you know, so sort of watch from the front instead of beside of me. You had to run and never even got to say goodbye because we, we could have said goodbye when we were in person and we didn't really because it's too hard a conversation to have. And he, I'm sure he didn't know how he right. was going to feel when I left. You know, you never even really got to say goodbye. You always said I'd break your heart one day. Ain't it funny how the roles reversed? Ain't it funny how the roles reversed? I should have known it from the start. Because he, he always was like, you're going to ruin me. You're going to, like, you're going to break right, my heart. And right. I, I spent so long being like, I'm not going to fall in love because this is a long distance thing. And it was like the moment I finally gave in, it kind of backfired on me a little bit. Probably my favorite part of the song is the pre-chorus, which is, no use in holding you from afar If I'll just be opening other skies If missing me's out Then there isn't much else I can do And like one of the reasons he ended things Is he was like 
he had been in a really traumatic long distance relationship that I think instilled a lot of insecurities about being in a long distance right. relationship that was just too much, too much anxiety to live with. And I, I sort of was like, if, if hold, if loving you from afar is just going to open all these other scars that you have, there's nothing I can do about that. If, if my sheer existence is making your life hell, right? what can I do but step away? And then the, the whole, I fly to you to make a plan, but there's no clarity in smoke and dust. Fly to you to make a plan. Was you know I, I I went I went there to try to fix to try to figure things out but you know how how much can you figure out in a in a week of a of a three long right. three year long relationship you know like right. where you just there's just so many emotions and and all of that you know all because the song you know came is coming out today or the song right. is coming out whatever it doesn't mean that we're still in that world you know like we said we get to recontextualize right. and so that's that's that final that final verse is like I know about your flaws. Would have been fine with me. You don't want help. I shouldn't have tried to be. No about your flowers. Would have been fine with me. You don't want help. I shouldn't have tried to be. I'm just myself. And now I'll be saying goodbye. And mm. that's like, I it wasn't fair of me to ask you to try to be okay. It wasn't fair of you to get mad at me for wanting you to be okay. You know what I mean? Right, right. Like it, it, it. Neither one of us was in the right. Neither one of us was in the wrong. It just. It didn't. It didn't work. One of one of the things that stuck with me the most uh, that next one said is that we we teach each other how to hurt each other, and it's like this yeah. idea of like you know because we're so vulnerable, we know the stories of how every relationship you know like ended. We show somebody our pressure points. And I always thought that it was like said in a sort of like hostile way, like, oh, like we give our pressure points so somebody can poke them. But it's also like sometimes you can't help but to repeat your mistakes or repeat your patterns. Sometimes you poke the pressure points because you don't know what to do otherwise. Like sometimes there are all of these like um, these dynamics of of vulnerability, I think, that come from these uh, you know, intense relationships and also these endings. I totally get what, like, totally get what you're saying. I think it resonates in that song too, that like you tried your best, you know? And in the same to the thesis of the whole record, like you tried, you know, this is a record of like you tried and some really great stuff came of trying, you know? Is that everything? No, it can never be, you know? And that's, that's. First love never lasts. Exactly. And you get something to look forward to. Exactly. You know? It was cool too to see, loving you silently come out because it played on your face. You know? Yeah. So sorry, you know, we've, we've dived into this, this kind of relationship that I, I genuinely haven't spoken about for a year. Also we're coming up on exactly one year since I wrote it to, to bring it back into the world of, you know, me as an artist and a songbird. And it is just a song. Uh, that is actually also one of the other things about why it's called songbird is for a long time. I was like, I'm scared to tell these stories. And then I had to go, no girl, they're just songs. Right. They were stories right. when you wrote them, but now they're songs. Just let them be songs. And so now it really is just a song. It's and it's crystal. It's yeah. like it's crystallized moments exactly. and memories. Exactly. It's yeah. it's a it's a moment preserved in amber. And um the the night that that came out was so special because it so it was uh June 3rd which was the blackout day for the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. You and I went to a prosecute killer cops protest in downtown LA that day which was very intense. So it was too late to pull the release by the time I realized it was going to be on blackout day and I didn't want to take away from the movement. So I just sort of made my peace with the fact that here's this song that's my favorite song I've ever made and I'm really proud of and I love the video and I'm just not going to post about it. Yeah. And it kind of hurt, but I was also like, this isn't about me. Like right. the, this right. is, there's a lot more important stuff happening in the world than some little love song that I wrote. But 
that being said, I forgot about it that day. Like I forgot it was coming out that day. And then that night we ended up hanging out with a, a new group of friends that was just this magical spark. Like we just had the most incredible night. And then I think you were the one who was like, hey, doesn't Loving You Silently drop in like two minutes? Like, should we all <laughs> listen to it? And this was a group of incredible Berkeley musicians who I had just started hearing playing for the first time and had massive respect for everybody in the room. And getting to watch them and you who had been through this whole process with me, like listen to this song as a first impression of me as a musician, which is really what Songbird is to the whole world for me. So getting right. to see that in person happen in real time was so special. I'll, I'll never forget like the look that, that look that you and I shared. Like when I just, I just looked at you and just kind of was like, ah, wow. <laughs> well, that was, that was, you know, cause what, what I was, what I was seeing was somebody presencing a song that meant something suddenly existing in the world and being grateful for that experience. I remember seeing seeing it play out on your face and thinking to myself, I, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to feel that. I want to I want to have this relationship with my music that I think like it's within me yeah. to, to have that experience too. I just have to let myself right. do that. And 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 that's what like when you looked at me, I was just like, I was like, one, this is so good. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. And oh my God, like this is so special. You know? It was also, I think, maybe the first song I'd ever put out that I really had zero things I would change about it. Mm. And that's a really cool that's feeling. A, that's a big and, statement. Like that's, and you know, the, the yeah. song came out seven weeks ago today and I still wouldn't change a thing about it. And that's a really cool thing. <laughs> that's huge. I don't think I've ever felt that about anything yeah, ever. You it's know? massive. Not just music, but like literally anything yeah, I've ever. Yeah, I'll probably never feel that way about it again. <laughs> like I literally, every single time I listen to the song, I'm like, there is not a single thing that I would change. And that's a really special thing, so. What do you hope people take away from this record? I hope people take away from the record what they need. I mean, I, I think that if I had to describe sonically what this record is, it's that little pocket of melancholy nostalgia that you need to live in in order to process sometimes. Like, mm -hmm. you don't wanna listen to a really sad song. You don't wanna listen to a happy song. Sometimes you need something that's not neutral, but in a very specific part of the spectrum. And I think that this record really lives in that very specific part that I know I need a lot. I think I have a, a playlist on my phone called Emotional Release <laughs> and one called Catharsis. And this, most of these songs I think would fit on either of those, those records. So I hope that people use it to get in touch with their own feelings and mm -hmm. to like let themselves feel and then come out of it the other side. You know, I know you and I have had a lot of conversations about this in the past couple of weeks about crying. Right. Because we've sort of had breakdowns in front of each other for the first time recently. And like, I, I hate it when I start to cry in front of someone and they go, no, 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 don't cry. I, when I start to cry, I need someone to say, come here, let it out. Yeah. Hug, cry. Because yeah. you feel so much better on the other side. You need that emotional release. I think what I really like about this friendship is that we encourage each other to feel exactly whatever we're feeling. Like if you're angry, be angry. If you're sad, be sad. Like get it out of you so that you're not holding on to it and letting it fester and morph into something weird. Yeah. You know? If you were to look back on this record in a year, how would you hope to feel about it? <laughs> You know, I sort of already feel like I'm looking back on it from a year forward because I wrote the last song that's right, on it right. almost a year ago. And almost a year ago was when I realized what I wanted this project to be. I was about to get on an airplane to fly to Nashville and I was in the airport going, oh my God, oh my God. I called my dad and I was like, I just figured out what my next record's gonna be. I figured out what it's called. I figured out what the artwork's gonna be. Like <laughs> it was this moment of divine inspiration at 6 a.m. on the way to the airport. That was just crazy. And I went back and I found all the songs I wanted and I put all of the lyrics in a document and I was like, oh my God, this is happening. So I 
I look back on it now and I hope in a year I will continue to look back on it as a time capsule and like a lovely representation of a period in my life. I, I look at it as a turning point in my career already. And I hope that I continue to. And I, I hope I look back on it and I go, oh, hey, I wasn't quite there yet, but I hear the building blocks of what was about to be next. Like, that's what I hope with Songbird. I hope that this marks the beginning of of kind of something new. And I think that I'll continue to make music that feels more, quote unquote, my sound or <laughs> quote unquote, my vibe or more fun to perform or what makes me famous. Or blah, 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 blah. But I don't think anything is ever going to be so authentically this was who I am in this moment. And this is a, this is an audio snapshot of who I was at a certain point in my life. Well, and and just like relationships, like any record that you make is a part of you either by, oh, this is what I did right and I want to do better next time. Or this is what I did wrong and I need to, you know, shift away from it. Like Off Brand and Songbird are part of the building blocks that now can build whatever's coming next, you know, like I, yeah. like that's exciting. Like I'm looking forward to even just Thank hearing you. some of the the new stuff that you're, you're working yeah. on. I'm excited to be potentially a part of yeah. stuff, you know, Absolutely. like that, that'll be, you know, it's just, it's, it's a special record and I'm, I'm grateful that we, we saw it develop and it's, it's nice to talk about it. It's nice to talk about it as friends. It's nice to talk about it. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm grateful that it came out during quarantine. You know, yeah. I'm grateful that it came out during a time where I was really forced to look inward and go, what can I, what can I just do on my own here that feels the most just, you know, comes from home and comes from the heart. And I'm really happy that that was how it came out. I feel like it will always represent this, the, a small glimmer of hope in this very strange time. And I think it also was a really, quite frankly, maybe the hardest thing I've ever done was polishing off this record. You know, the beginning was right. easy. Writing is not ever hard for me. Like not to sound cocky, but like no, that's, I mean, writing that's the is, part that yeah. comes naturally. It's the packaging and the product and the selling of it that's that's difficult and the, the finishing. And it was really one of the hardest projects of my life. And to know that I was able to come out the other side of it, okay, is something that I'll hold on to forever. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a fan. Like I think it, sound, it sounds great. And I, I hope everybody listening, if you haven't heard it already, please, you know, can- Please listen. Well, Kira Kazarin, Saren Kiriko, Kay Sizzle. <laughs> Are you ready for the question round? <gasps> Yay, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, first question of the question round. What is your phone background? My phone background right now is uh, an image by Jeff Kepler who did my Songbird album art that is just a beautiful moon in a sky. Before that, it was my dog Delilah. Oh, uh, nice. And before that, it was a picture I took of the sunset at the top of my favorite mountain in LA. Speaking of Delilah, Alan C., our Patreon subscriber, has a question, which is, if you could have any pet, what would it be? Ooh. I mean, Delilah's pretty great. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, no, realistically, like one day when I have a house and a partner, I want a golden retriever. I would love a lab and I would love like maybe like a Bernese mountain dog because my family Ooh. had one when I was little. But yeah, I don't crave like a weird exotic animal. Like, yeah, I'm good. I want a, I want a huge turtle. <laughs> like, I, can you imagine having like a really big turtle? First like of all, a Galapagos. that like, fits you so well. <laughs> like, of course. Um, and second of all, yeah, I actually had a couple of friends who lived in Malibu who had like four massive hundred-year-old tortoises. That's amazing. I love that. I'd I like, love that for you. Yeah. I'd like a like a really like beautiful, well-trained monkey. Like I Whoa, like just a little monkey on my shoulder, like pirate like style. A poo? Like a poo or a like poo. a or like like, Momo. Or Jack. Momo. That wait, I changed my answer. I want Appa. You want oh, Appa? Appa would be the best pet. <laughs> I want Appa. We really think the show should have been called Appa the Last Air Bison. Literally. <laughs> He's the star of the show. Truly. Appa's the MVP. He is the CEO. He's the CEO. He is actually the president of the company. <laughs> <laughs> New president of Nick is Appa. 
Hilarious. Love that. Do you have a non-musical hobby? Yoga. I don't know if that's, that's necessarily great. a hobby. No, that's, um, but I've, I've been, more of a, a way of life. Yeah, but I mean, I've been practicing like vinyasa, you know, asana, yoga for like really since I was little, but like really seriously had a consistent practice for eight years. Um, I've had a really super crazy, consistent like yoga sculpt practice for the past three years. And I actually, right as quarantine was hitting, was about to get certified as a yoga instructor, which is not because I will probably teach very often or like needed the job, but because I feel like because my passion has become my career, I wanted one hobby that was solely for me. Mm. And that is what that is. I also love hiking. You're a solid rollerblader too. No, I am a, <laughs> I am a novice. I am an okay roller skater because I was a pretty good ice skater when I was younger. And I got real freaking stir crazy during quarantine because all the gyms closed and you can only do so many gosh darn burpees before you lose your mind. So I got myself a pair of roller skates because I was on TikTok watching girls <laughs> Girls in bikinis on roller skates, and I was just like, I want to be that. I want to be one of them. We we went biking and rollerblading. I thought you did all right, despite I knew that the downward hill leaving your house was going to be rough. But once we got onto flat ground, although it was funny because like I kind of forgot about how different the rate of speed between like a novice like roller skater and like an expert biker is, and so you were like <laughs> chilling, talking, telling stories, and I was like ha- like huffing and puffing and using every strength ounce of strength in my legs to keep up with you. It was fun though. Yeah, I was like, we were having a chat. At one point, you're just like, Nay, I love you, but I can't breathe. <laughs> I was like, I was like, can we have an oxygen break at the end? <laughs> it's hilarious though. Like, I work out freaking once or twice a day. Like, I work out so often, and for some reason, I still get out of breath so easily. Biking's my uh, my yeah. my hobby. Cardio is a special skill. So, uh, speaking of special skills, are there any skills you don't have that you would like to have? Yeah, I want to. I want to know how to produce. Oh yeah. And yeah. I and I and I do to the extent of being able to be a backseat producer. Like I know. The terminology, I know the plugins, like I'm I'm able to be in a session and be like, can you like sidechain that compression? Like, wait, run that through Alter Boy, like hard pan that right and left, whatever. Like I know where what it is. I just don't really know where everything is in a program. So that's on my list. I'm gonna I'm gonna write, record, and produce an album in the next few years. We, we, were, we were talking about that the other Tyler day. Tyler the like, creator style. <laughs> we were talking about that the other day. You and I are like old school producers in the sense that we're in the room, we know how the song should sound. We like, you know, know these elements and like whatnot and can communicate yeah. to the various like parties. But yeah, I wish I could like sit down. Right. And- I mean, granted, like I'm not saying I by any means know everything that like an actual producer does. Like I give y'all your your props because like there's so much but, incredible but also, like, work that I, goes into I that. don't I like I I don't have the men like I can't sit down and for more than five minutes without having like a panic. Like I have a hard time with that. I think I'll enjoy it. I'll just, you know, one thing at a time. Yeah. Um would you be a pirate? No. No. Interesting. Care to elaborate on that? I don't particularly run towards dangerous situations. I don't particularly enjoy stealing. <laughs> I get fairly seasick. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't really see anything about that lifestyle that I would enjoy. No, and I are fiercely divided on the issue. Yeah, are you? I, I'm, I'm firmly in the camp that it would be not be as fun as people think it is. It's a lot of danger. It's a lot of crime. Yeah. It would be dirty and 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 dangerous and You're bloody. And yeah, it's- the, I love dirty, dangerous crime on the open sea. That's my- <laughs> Yeah, and it's stressful. Like you can it's never so relax. so stressful. You can never relax. I can never relax anyway. You have to be someone who enjoys the, the chaos. Yeah. I just love the ocean. All right. You know, I don't love being Nate, in it. I love being on a boat on it, you know? Nate, That's you wouldn't the, even get in my freaking pool. Yeah, I don't want to be in the water. Oh, Jesus. No, think about it. You know, if a pirate's in the water, he's in trouble. All right, all right. He's, he's, he's either marooned or has walked the plank. You know, a pirate specifically isn't on the water. He's 
in the water, he's on the water. You know, you're telling like, me you're telling me you as a pirate would would be able to make it through without pissing someone off enough to have them make you walk the plank. Nate, you would make it ten minutes on a pirate boat before you would have to walk the plank. I would say I would be a charming, charismatic pirate. Okay? You would be a charming, charismatic pirate in a Disney film. <laughs> yeah, we'd all sing songs. You yeah, know? And, and Yo-ho real, and in real life, home. you would be walking the you plank. Be within in, real life, in real life, they sang songs. You know, they have all these <laughs> sea shanties. I got them. I got them on block. I'd be a good pirate. <laughs> You would be a, a dead pirate. Um, it'd, be, it'd be the best two years of pirating I'd ever... <laughs> be the best week of my life, honestly. You could pirate a movie from an illegal website. How about that? Middle ground. What's my next question? Your next question... <laughs> back, back to the back to the uh, the main squeeze. Uh, do you have any tattoos? The what? The main squeeze. I hate it. I don't have tattoos. I love tattoos on other people. I think people with tattoos are super hot and I always want to know the meanings behind them and I'm, yes, love them. Don't have any of my own. Do you want one? No. I Interesting. Really, which is strange that I like love them on other people so much. I think part of it is I like being a blank slate a little bit to be hmm. able to like change my aesthetic. I didn't even really want my ears pierced for years and years. I had a stylist like had to like convince me at 16 because he couldn't find me good clip on earrings on the red carpet. Like, mm. I don't know. Sometimes when people ask why I don't, I'll use an excuse to like, you know, my family's Jewish and they just like don't really like it. But that's really not the case. Like, I think my parents would be fine with it. I just think I'm a little too much of a perfectionist. Mm. I would find something wrong with it yeah. that I don't like. Also, yeah. I don't like how I wore my hair a month ago. I don't <laughs> like the shirt I picked a year ago. Why would I think I could possibly pick something that I'll like forever? And I know that that's part of the tattoo thing is it just becomes a part of you and you have to be no, okay that's with I'm mistakes. At. I get whatever. that. I get like, I, I'm like, okay, you know, one, I'm going to, I'm going to notice the, the one detail like, or that's slightly askew. And I, yeah. I'm going to yeah. think about that the rest of my I life. But I, I don't also trust love them. that like, much. I think part of the reason I'm so attracted to people with tattoos is because I'm attracted to that level of commitment. Yeah, right. For and sure. like, I'm attracted to that level of like knowing who you are in the moment and being willing to just go for it. I also think I'm so all or nothing that if I were to get tattoos, I would want to be covered. Like I would want that to be my aesthetic. I would want to, you know, have Kehlani's arms and just be like right. covered right. In, in beautiful artwork. I think for some people, part of why tattoos are appealing is to take the things that are on the inside of you and put them on the outside of you. I think maybe part of the reason that also doesn't appeal to me is because I spent my childhood and teenagehood being extremely exposed right. to the public. And so now I kind of hold some of my privacy near near and dear. And I sort of code switch, not just in a language form, but in a in a sense of humor form. And, you know, because I have so many different kinds of interests and parts of my personality, I like to bring those different parts of me forward with different people who I meet, not in a way of hiding anything, but just in a way of like highlighting those things. So I like to have it all inside so I can sort of choose Decide. which parts of me I want to reveal. We, we had this conversation know. This is an interesting it. conversation. No, no we, had, we had a conversation about it at one point because um, Noah's a quiet person, but dresses very loudly. Mm, like a lot of loud true. design, very interesting. I'm a very loud person, but I dress very, very quietly because I feel like I want to put out a kind of blank slate because I know I'm gonna. You're a lot. I'm, I know I'm a lot. I know I'm, gonna, <laughs> I know I'm gonna fill the room. I don't need on top of people like coming up with conclusions based on what I'm saying to also make conclusions based on what I'm wearing. You know, and I've always sort of joked around that I'm a brain in a jar. Like I'd rather the jar be as like non-descript non as, as possible, so that like we can talk about the brain a little bit. You know, um, yeah. you know, it's funny because that's true. Like I, I feel like a big part of like who I know you to be as a person is like. Your, your wardrobe. It's great. Right, yeah, it's no, because it's like, if I'm not going to say much, I would like to say, like, I, I feel like I speak more through the music that I make and like 
the art that I create and the clothes that I wear. It's oftentimes in the words that come out of my mouth. Like that feels like such a limiting way of expressing myself a lot of the time. Interesting. The bird shirt that you were wearing was what opened our whole conversation about music for birds. Oh yeah, for Which sure. I love. Like that was what inspired that whole conversation. So that's the thing. If I, if I had like a sleeve or something like that, that would, that would tell you something before I can open my mouth and I don't want that. All right. Huh. Interesting. So well, no, don't like them, but they're hot as hell. If yeah, you have them, I'm probably attracted to you. That makes sense. You heard it here first, folks. You heard it here first, folks. The way to cure his heart, tattoos. Just, Except if for they're good, if they're good tattoos. Yeah, yeah. If they're if they're tattoos that represent things that I think are super dope, or they're just they really match your aesthetic, like I, yeah, they're hot. Uh, what was the first concert you attended? <laughs> so what I usually think of is the first big concert, which was Taylor Swift in a stadium. Nice. My friend who I still can't believe that this was real. I, I went to school with this girl whose family was, I guess, just loaded because she got us a box and took like t- 10 of her friends from school. I wasn't even that close with her. She took like 10 of us to like, a, we had our own private box at this stadium to see the Taylor Swift show. And that oh was like my, my first concert experience. And I was like, is this what all concerts are? This is great. <laughs> but actually my very first time I ever was like, went into a venue and saw someone play music was Drake Bell. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Who ended up being the first person I ever went on tour with. We met, we ran into each other at a, like an autograph signing, like Comic-Con convention and started talking because we had the Nickelodeon connection. And I think he and his girlfriend at the time overheard me talking to my dad about like, oh, did we get the new mix? And he was like, oh, you do music. And all of a sudden we were sharing music with each other and they were like, we're going on tour. We need an opener. And I ended up going on this tour, performing all the music that became off brand and a bunch of songs that didn't make it onto off brand and even a couple songbird songs. And yeah, he was the first tour I ever went on. We played like Did you tell me you were something. the first show? Yeah, I remembered it halfway through tour. <laughs> this like memory that had been stuck in the back of my brain because I was eight, I think. Maybe nine. He was probably, he was like a teenager. Right. Damn. He was um, still on Drake and Josh. Asking like, as because especially because it's you, do you remember your first Broadway show? <laughs> well, I mean, my first- my That first, wasn't your mom's. Right, right. So yeah, yeah, so my first Broadway show was seeing Beauty and the Beast a gazillion freaking times. <laughs> right. Um, and I know I saw several shows that my dad music directed and probably several shows that my uncle cause music directed. It was probably Wicked. And then In the Heights. Mm. Ooh, in the nice. Heights, I remember, had a big impact on me. And part of it is Alex Lacamoire is a, a super close family friend. He's my uncle, essentially. My my dad uh, gave him like his first job. Um, my dad like heard him playing in a room. He was like, <laughs> who are you? You're the most talented human being in the entire I world. Walking into your house, um, seeing your dad with Stephen Schwartz and Alex Lacamoire, yeah. and my like, jaw fell to the floor. <laughs> yeah, Alex is, if, if anybody was ever wondering, he is truly and genuinely just the most wonderful human being and, and always has been. Talent aside, just a, a good a good dude love him to death but um yeah so I remember we saw in the heights and it it really hit me in an emotional way because I was I was a dancer seeing that kind of dance on stage on a Broadway stage for the first time that wasn't like traditional theater was really exciting the you know seeing all the beautiful culture that I didn't really know and hadn't really been super exposed to was just gorgeous to me and I was standing on the stage after the show in order to, you know, meet the cast and say hi to Alex. And, you know, my mom was saying hi to all of her Broadway friends in the cast that she knew. And I saw the set design peach. I, I won't spoil the context if you haven't like seen the show, but the the spray painted mural of, I think it's Abuelita, who mm. like, just like a super emotional set piece. And I saw it, I was literally nine or 10 and I saw it and I burst into tears. Mm. And everyone was like, are you okay? Is she scared? Is she nervous? And I was like, no, I was like having a beautiful moment of 
humanity and like like a really deep moment for for such like a young child to be experiencing and it just really touched me and I remember like going up to the actors as this little nine or ten year old kid and being like you just like changed my life like you just really moved me like you're amazing I'm feeling all of these feelings that I don't really understand but like thank you and yeah was, that was really Lynn special. there at that point I don't remember if Lynn was there that night I think the last time I saw Lynn was at uh, Alex's wedding. And I remember Lynn performed a, I think freestyled rap about the way Alex met his wife, Ileana. That's awesome. And I remember I like I, I, I was, you know, I was young, so it feels a little bit like a dream because I was, I think I was 11 or 12 at this point or maybe 10 or 11. But um, I think they even like acted it out like in like a fun, like improv way. And I, I had no idea who Lin-Manuel Miranda was. You know, I knew Alex was like a theater dude, like my parents, but like, I didn't really know. But I just remember watching that and being like, what is, first of all, is this what all weddings are like? <laughs> like sign me up. Yes, right. please. Yeah. I think that was the last time I saw Lynn. And funny enough, just while we're on the topic of this, I remember being at dinner with Alex when I was in New York visiting family one time. And he was, you know, my dad was like, so what have you been working on lately? And Alex was like, well, Lynn and I are working on this project about Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> and Alex went to the bathroom and I literally turned to my dad and I was like, is that going to work? <laughs> like, like, but about Alexander Hamilton, like like for Broadway, like a musical, like okay, well, cool. And then of course, you know, it's I've now seen it four times. You and I watched it the other night. I burst into tears, uh, sitting on Noah's bed, like right, just, just having an absolute meltdown. I I stand everybody in that show. I think it's the greatest piece of art that's ever been created. I stand firmly corrected. All right, next question is: Do you have a scar with a story? Yes. Yeah, tell it. I do. I have a great one. So. I mean, it sucked, but um, <laughs> yeah, I have a scar on my head. Uh, I got kicked in the head filming a stunt sequence. Oh, right. Uh, for Thundermans. Yeah. Uh, it was a crossover episode with a show called Henry Danger. The crossover was called Danger and Thunder. Nice. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, he was supposed to kick over my head and I was supposed to duck and he'd been rehearsing in basketball shorts and they put him in skinny jeans to shoot. And he just didn't get his leg quite high enough. It came back down because the, the material was tight. He had wooden heeled boots on. Maybe I didn't duck low enough. Who knows? Either way, um, the wooden heel of his boot cracked onto my head and I fell to the floor and just blood everywhere. Also, strangely enough, I had had my first kiss the night before and it had happened in a way that left me feeling really uncomfortable, just left me feeling really strange. And I hadn't slept the whole night because I couldn't stop thinking about what a weird situation it had been. So I hadn't slept for 40 hours. Then I got kicked in the head, went to the emergency room on literally no sleep and then the next day met the kid who became my first boyfriend for the next year. So it was like a very eventful three days. Yeah. Damn. Um, but the story gives me a whole lot of clout when I'm working with stunt people. Cause they're all like, <laughs> yeah, man, I busted up my elbow doing bad max. Yeah, dude, I have like a knee injury left over from kill bill. And I'm like, yeah, dude, I have a head scar from that time. I got kicked in the head wow. playing a super villain possessed by a ghost fighting my twin brother. <laughs> I remember when you, uh, you told me the story too, that you didn't entirely realize what like didn't you say at one point that like you stood up and just like okay so yeah I wasn't gonna say this but I fell to the ground and my first words verbatim were fuck can we do another take <laughs> and I went Kira you're bleeding and I looked down and I, I was because this isn't a hilarious story enough I was dressed as a pirate because it was a Halloween episode so I guess I have been a pirate there um, I was dressed as a pirate is and that I had why this, you don't want to be a pirate yeah, you have I memories this, of getting kicked in the head yeah exactly PTSD, pirate traumatic stress disorder. Nice. Thank you. I had a like really roughly white shirt on and I, they were like, look down. And I looked <laughs> down and you know, your head bleeds a lot. Well, and sure so does. I was just gushing blood and they were like, we don't have another costume. It was also like 
the last shot of the night because we had stunt doubles for this scene, but they were like going to let us do the quote unquote easy parts. And then the stunt doubles were going to do the hard parts. And Jack and I, my co-star were gymnasts. So we were always like, let us do the flips and have them do the hand to hand combat. But I, I guess they just felt like flips were too dangerous. And you know, hand-to-hand combat makes more sense for us to film because they need face shot, reaction shots. And right. to be fair, we were always the ones being like, let us do stunts, let us do stunts. And they were like, eh, your safety comes first. And then once I got hurt, they were like, you're not doing stunts anymore. And I was like, that's fine. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's a scar with a story if we've ever heard one for before. Sure. That's Yeah, it's quite the story. What are three thoughts you have at this moment? I'm starving. Nice. <laughs> I'm so hungry. Um, That's my first thought. My second thought is I'm a little stressed because I just got an email that I got a call back and they want the tape tonight. Oh. So I might have to go work on a 15 page script right now and film it. And I love you guys. And I'm so happy that we did this podcast. And like this has been the most fun almost three hours of my life. And I'm sure it will be less when you guys are all listening to this at home. But um, I I became a Sleeping Lion fan recently. And now I'm a Talking Lion fan, too. And I'm a Nate and Noah fan. I will work here fans both as a a musician and as a a person. So it means it means a lot. Fan of Kira's puns specifically. Aww. (laughs) Coming from you. That means so much. Oh, my God. Because I already know this one. I mean, you know, you know, it's whatever, whatever. (laughs) And lastly, what are you looking forward to? If you forgive the phrasing. Nice. What am I looking forward to? What is something to look forward to for you? What is something for you? What is something you are for to be looking forward to? (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I don't think I really have something, but right now I don't really think I need something because every moment is so good that I'm kind of okay just living in it. Hmm. I want more of of this. I mean, you know, I can't go into too much detail here, but my life is really good at the moment. And so I'm I'm excited for just more of this. Then here's to more of this. Here's yeah. to more of this. Thank you for... Uh, for I'm looking for... forward to Indian food in about 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, same. I'm so hungry. I'm dying. Um, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for, for being... Like, thank you for the... existing. Thank you for Didn't the existing. I text you today? I was like, thank you for being you. You're, you're like, you texted... I woke up to you saying, I appreciate you more than you will ever understand. I'm just like... I want to wake up like that all the time. Like, that, like I, Nate helped me through a very sticky situation last night, so I woke up feeling very grateful. Uh, well, I, I feel feel the same. It's it's so nice that like it's 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 so awesome to like hear these stories. I know these stories, but now like anybody listening knows these stories and knows yeah. knows. Thank you for getting you. them out of me. Yeah, it's, like that's special too. You're you're awesome, and you're awesome. honestly like. Like our, this friendship is the best best thing that's come out of the quarantine. So thank you for being on the show. Cheers to that. Love Yee. you guys. So I'll go on loving you silently. You're not the one, but you're still a part of me. We never won and never even really got to try. We would like to thank Alan C. for supporting Talking Lion on Patreon and Isotope.